Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, this one is legit. Yesterday, in the conversation with Peter Marr, I said it's not out of the realm of possibility that they would win in Winnipeg, and they did. Uh, hey, kids, uh, welcome to Just a Game. I am me. You are you. Thanks for being here. We are broadcasting live from Treaty 7 Territory, and, of course, this is an inclusive program. Everybody's welcome. Everybody is safe here. Uh, love this show. This show is going to have uh, a real good vibe to it later on. Uh, joining us in studio Eric DeHatchek, our NHL insider from The Athletic. It's good to catch up with him. He's back up north getting set for the playoffs. Now, whether or not he's covering playoffs in this city or just up in the provincial capital remains to be seen. It's it's still leaning one direction. Uh, but nonetheless, we're excited to have him. And in just a moment, we'll introduce you to our first guest who is, uh, well, <clears throat> honestly, he was the first guy even before the show started. I said, I need a UFC expert. And he said, I'm in. So. It's taken a while, but we now have a reason to actually have a UFC expert in. So, And hopefully this will lead to more appearances. But before we go there, uh, 3-1 Calgary over the Winnipeg Jets. The Jets and Calgary are now tied. Jets have a game in hand. Uh, the math is not in favor of the local hockey heroes. Uh, they surrender the math, as it were, to the other teams that they are chasing uh, because they have played more games. 
Uh, off until sun Saturday when they're back in Vancouver, then home against Nashville, and then finishing off the regular season against San Jose. So uh, if you want meaningful games down to the stretch, you've got meaningful games down to the stretch. Um, but boy, a lot of things have to fall into place. Having said that, uh, there was a lot of consternation and navel-gazing yesterday when, my God, he's starting Markstrom. How dare he do that? Oh, my God, he's starting the same lineup. How dare he do that? Um, Markstrom might have played his best game of the season last night. The team played a really good road game, uh, gave up the first goal, which is traditional, uh, but managed to find a way to punch back. And uh, Nikita Zadorov had a goal taken away, but managed to get that one again in the third period. Uh, this is the team you expected to see all year long. This is the team that that had people suggesting that they could be a team that would go deep in a playoff run. Um, unfortunately, we just have not seen that team enough. Uh, elsewhere, uh, just to make note, uh, the Red Deer Rebels uh, over top of the Calgary Hitman 6-1 last night at the Dome. Uh, Red Deer now leads this series three games to one and a chance to close it out on Friday uh, back at the PV Mart Center. Uh, and just for those, it's a podcast, so some of this stuff is going to be dated, but uh, did want to make reference that the uh, Blue Jays are underway. Uh, three and three going into a game today, so mm, another big off season that big expectations but you didn't address the pitching ah but we did address the pitching did you address the pitching so far three and three and six games and Canada opened up the world women's hockey championships with a win over Switzerland by a four nothing score yesterday but the game that I'm most intrigued to see uh will be Canada and the and Chechia which is on Friday and that's because all due respect to Emily Clark and and uh, you know Natalie Spooner and all of the Rebecca Johnson and all of the Philippe Marie Poulin and the great Canadian players and the girls that do so much Sarah Nurse that do so much to grow the game in this country. Uh, my eyes will be squarely on Chechia, who played Japan today and Canada tomorrow. Carla McLeod from the University of Calgary Dinos uh, led them to their first ever medal in any event internationally uh, at the top level last September. And I want to see what she's able to do because uh, she is incredible. If you have never heard her speak, uh, particularly when she talks about what she did to, to create culture with Chechia, it's probably one of the best hockey stories that I've heard. And, and there's lots of lessons tied in there. So uh, from that regard, we're pulling for uh, Carla to have more success. Uh, yep, that'll do it. We can we can get back to the hockey in a little while. Um, let's do this. Uh, we, all of our guests are brought to you, of course, by Ski Seller Snowboard, skisellersnowboard.com. 76 years. You have to go all the way back to 1946 when they opened their first doors here in Calgary. Three current locations, McLeod Trail by Chinook Center, 17th Avenue Southwest, just off of 14th Street and Bull Ridge Road Northwest uh, by McDonald's at the bottom of Windsport. But, Rob, it's it's melting out there. It's melting out there, but in the mountains, there's still snow. So check it out. Spring skiing. Uh, there's deals on snowboards and skis and, and all kinds of stuff to keep you warm. Head on over, skisellersnowboard.com. Uh, indeed, a pleasure to introduce and welcome our UFC insider. Some of you may know him from the wildly popular uh, morning show on CJ92. JD joins us. How are you, brother? I'm good, man. How are you? Good. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, too long. Too yes. long. Excited to see the new digs. This looks awesome. This is not not bad, right? Yeah, brother. It's absolutely. It's got that vibe. It's got that feeling, right? Gotta tell you, there's a, an air of trepidation when I get called an expert or an insider in anything. I would not call myself that in the realm of... of you don't think so? Anything except for Ultimate Fighting. I'd okay. go, I'm not an expert. Yeah. I would border upon expert on a topic like this you one. You would, eh? I think so. Okay, probably. Maybe. Um 
we should make mention that this has been rather big week for you. I don't want you to, you know, put them, you know, side to side or have to pick one. But in addition to doing this program, you also interviewed uh, somebody from Metallica this week, right? Rob Trujillo. Yeah, yeah, the bass player, which was insane. Yeah, um, yeah terrifying, um, exciting, so so unbelievably cool. And it, 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 it still baffles me how dudes that are solar systems more popular than the average guy like you and I can still mm-hmm. find a way to just look a fellow man in the eye and have a, just a really normal conversation. It was really right. cool. Now, they are on their way out or they are out touring at this point? Metallica? Yeah, about to tour the entire world for like two full years. Is um, that what it is? Yeah, pretty well, man. And they spaced it out pretty nicely. A lot of cities, they're going to do like a, a Friday and a Sunday and take the Saturday night off okay. and do two totally different sets of openers, two completely different set lists. Really? Yeah, and they'll just hit continent after continent and just make sure the whole world gets to see Metallica. Wow. Uh, I'm assuming up in Edmonton? Yeah, we'll get two shows at Commonwealth next summer. Like 2024. That, that's how far out that band is booking now. Is, is Can like you a full ima- year like I, in advance. I can't imagine that. Very few bands that could do it. You know, very few bands you could look at and go, here's your next two years of dates. Yeah. You're playing all of the major continents, all the major countries, all the major cities, football stadiums when you get there. That, that band is enormous. It's still. It is funny to me that in, I think it was 1994, my dad and I sat in Commonwealth Stadium for Voodoo Lounge with the Rolling Stones. And we both agreed that, well, there's, you know, this is the last time you'll ever see this. There's no bands that can do this. There's nothing coming up that will ever be able to do this. Here we are. Almost 30 years later, we have the bands. Kind of wild, isn't it? Music just keeps going, right? I'm okay with it. You know, as long as these bands want to hang out, as long as they can do it at a high level, you know, the the, the Motley Crue's, the Guns N' Roses, the Metallica's, the Stones, the U2's of the world, Mm -hmm. as long as they're willing to do it at a high level, there's there's a bunch of us that either will see them again or haven't had the chance to that want to. Can Motley Crue still do it at a high level? God, no. No, so much so Mick Mars saw himself out, so. Yeah. 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 And yet, the Stones will still perform at, what, at 80? Yeah. Like, that's where, isn't Mick bouncing up against Mick 80? Mick would right? be right up around 80 and can still do it. Vince Neil sounds like a coyote in a garbage <laughs> compactor. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> I, there's some hard miles on there. Um, noted author, yeah. J.D. Lewis. Yeah. Um, this is also very special because I uh, have not had the opportunity to publicly talk to you about this successful book. There it is. Cody the Roadie. Um, you released this in the fall. Uh, we're working backwards on this. A... How successful was it? We're creeping on 20 grand for the CJ Kids Fund. Isn't that yeah. amazing? Yeah, thank you, dude. Thank that you. That is amazing. It's been so, so cool. I mean, that, that, that's gravy on top, if I'm being honest. Sure. This, the success of this whole thing was going to hinge upon just like making a thing, putting it out there, um, and getting to share it with people. Right. I wanted that to be the bar for success. Anything past that was, was great. And like I said, gravy. Um, so like it's, it's been cool to just put it out and, and share something that I made, something that is very far out of my comfort zone mm-hmm. and what I typically do. Um, had never written a book before, had never written a book for kids. Mm-hmm. So not only getting to put it out, but then like take it to classrooms around the city, share it with kids and raise money for kids. That's That's been so cool. I want to ask you about that part because that's the part that intrigues me the most is the the going out and the reading to kids. Mm-hmm. And um, to me, you know, our industry is changed. Um, but this is a throwback to me about how people in radio used to be part of the community and we kind of have lost that now it's no disrespect it's olympians that go to schools or it's you know firefighters and but it was nice to see somebody from the media going back and what was the response like what was it like you know sitting in front of kids and and reading your book 
so so cool. I mean, I, I was I was raised uh, in and around the library. Yeah, you know, we were kids that just we we always had library cards growing up. We we never had video game consoles, but whatever yeah. book you wanted in the next series you were reading was always ready and available from from mom and dad. So you know, like, like literacy and reading was already super important to me. But then you know, getting to take it out to schools and share it with kids, you realize a lot of schools haven't had guests post-pandemic no there just hasn't and it's not for a lack of interest or a lack of trying it just hasn't happened um so for a lot of these kids it's just the excitement of of having somebody different uh in to (laughs) to just hang out with a a face you know um but the teachers love it because they get you know 15 or 20 minutes (laughs) to just put their feet up and and catch their breath and um you know it's been you know not only cool to to read the book but be able to gift it to a lot of classrooms and leave a bunch of copies there Mm -hmm. on behalf of local businesses like like spalumbos and trolley five who have donated you know, larger amounts of copies like that. Yeah. And they get to run a Q and a with the kids too, you know, which, which ranges anywhere from what's it like writing a book and, and questions about that whole process to what kind of vegetables does Cody the roadie eat? Were it's you prepared? Awesome. Were you prepared for those questions? Eventually I got there. Yeah. That wasn't, that wasn't <laughs> the kind of question I was ready for, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. So take me all the way back to the beginning. Where did the journey start? Probably two, maybe three years ago when I first started tapping on the script. It was it was very early in COVID, actually, like first okay. first lockdown. It, it had been something I'd always wondered about doing. Okay. What would it be like to write a kid's book? Um, why hasn't anybody written a, a rock and roll themed kid's book? There mm-hmm. just didn't seem to be any of that out there when I went to read to my nephews. And uh, I thought, well, geez, but why don't I just try that? It's, it's, how hard could it be? The, yeah. the answer is harder than I thought, candidly. But um, I worked on that script for, for over a year, just tapping on it in, in coffee shops in my apartment, you know, wherever it might have been. Finally got it to a space where, where I liked it enough that I wanted to see if anybody else thought it was cool. Uh, seemed to pass the litmus test, and then I went about finding an illustrator because I couldn't draw. Yeah. Uh, so I called uh, my buddy Shane Connery Volk, who sings for uh, a local uh, rock band called One Bad Son. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, you know, when, when the pandemic happened, you know, shows were off he needed something to do and he had started illustrating comic books. So he seemed like the perfect dude. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a guy from the world of rock and a guy who could, who could draw a mean picture. Um, I gave him no artistic direction whatsoever. Just said, here's my words, draw whatever comes to mind. And he came back about three months later with, with a full book ready to go. And we got to work. What's the key to writing a, a children's book as opposed to if you tried to write this as a novel or, or a short story? Uh, you know, the kids seem, sure seem to enjoy all the rhyming and the cadence to it. So I think it was making sure that that flow was there, which mm-hmm. was a completely different writing style, something sure. I, I was, I was truly not used to. So that was fun to learn. Um, yeah. And I think just, just making sure that it had some kind of like an element of humor to it for sure. Like a, like a funny ending that the kids could kind of, kind of laugh around and also a, maybe a little bit of a lesson that, that they could take away yeah. and, and hopefully just take them inside of a world that they might not know. You know, it seems like a lot of, a lot of people don't know what happens before or after a rock show. Yeah. You know, the roadies never get the shine. Never shine. Right. Like never, ever. So it was cool to be able to. Jackson Brown tried. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I, I need to be able to, to hopefully, you know, give the shine to, to a group of people who don't normally have it and, and make some kids laugh along the way. So were you right? Have you always writ, uh, written? Were you always a guy that would yeah. write things? Okay. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, in, in various capacities, for sure. Never anything like this, but I've always loved to write. 100%. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So the book, how hard was it to sell? I mean, in the sense of to a publisher, how hard was it to get it made? So we looked at a publisher, but they, I mean, I, I, like I said, I wanted to raise all this money for the kids fund. That was the number one goal. I, I didn't want to make a penny. Yeah. You know, yeah. the only reward I wanted was, was internal candidly. So when I started going to publishers or, or talking to a lot of the major bookstores, 
they want a piece of the pie. Even mm-hmm. even when you tell them that it's you're not getting any of the pie, they go, well, we still want some. Yeah. Um, so I independently published. Went to Little Rock Printing uh, in Ramsey. They cut me an unbelievable deal once they heard that it was for kids. Yep. Um, and then we just started doing pop-up shops. So whether that was, you know, on the concourse to the Rough House, selling yep. them there, going to Spolumbo's down in Inglewood and popping up for a couple of hours or just taking them to, to concerts we were at or wherever it might have been and, and just started to distribute that way. So you're telling me that you've sold enough for $20,000 into the kids fund, the CJ92 kids fund without ever really being in the mainstream book market. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. Thank eh? you, man. Thank you. It, um... Yeah, I mean, I had to get creative, you know, and I had to be willing to do a lot of the stuff myself and, and, and try things, like I said, I wasn't comfortable with or knew nothing about. Yeah. Basically turned my apartment into, uh, you know, the Cody the Roadie distribution center <laughs> for two or three months. Did all the, because I've been selling it online too, I should mention that. Yeah. And, and all those mail-outs were done out of the house. And, What's the website? Uh, CodyTheRoadie.ca. Okay. Yeah, yeah, still do have, I think I got about half a box of books left. So if I can move those, we've officially sold out everything. And that's it? That's it? Uh, probably. Yeah. I think so. We'll see. If, if there's an appetite, for sure. I've thought about a sequel too, potentially. Have you? Just, honestly, I just, I enjoyed the process enough and yeah. I've enjoyed sharing it even more so. Well, you know, you're a little bit of a rarity hmm. because I, uh, you know, in the old gig, uh, September, October, November was book. You know, everything was coming out for Christmas. So sure. we always got the authors through. You always got, everybody wrote a book and, and it was the same thing. Oh, you don't know how hard it is to write a book. You don't know how hard it is to get it published. You don't, so much work. It's not worth the money and all those sort of things. And I appreciate that. Like, I get it. It's Canada. It's not the United States. We don't have that mark, especially hockey books and things like that. So to hear an author, uh, actually the only other guy that talked like you is, uh, is coming in after you which is Eric Dahachek when he wrote King of Russia with Dave King over in Russia. Which I just read, by the way. Oh, did you just about, read about it? About six months ago, I read that on vacation in Mexico. That is a tremendous it book. It is an incredible yeah, book. Yeah. Like, I, you know, it, it supersedes the KHL, but it's still appropriate reading. Yeah. Uh, and I loved it because, well, I knew both guys, but it also really, he Eric did such an amazing job of telling it through Dave's eyes. Um, having said that, you guys are the only two that I've ever heard that said, yeah, I enjoyed the process, which I think is kind of neat. I think I just loved how different it was. You know, how it, it was nothing like my, my regular job. It was right. nothing like preparing a radio show. It was, it was sure. so new. It was, it was such a, a different part of my brain to exercise. I think that's where I derived so much enjoyment, so much, so much challenge. It was a lot of fun. Um, anybody, like, it seems to me we live in a world now that this would be easy to take. Not easy. There would be an appetite to take it and, and make something visual out of it in a moving format, movie, video, mm. or anything like that. Any talk about that? I would like to animate it. Yeah. yeah. Even just turn it into a short that, that classrooms could share, you know, the classrooms we haven't been able to get to for a reading, right. uh, whether they're too far away or we just haven't had the time. I'd love to provide that as a resource and, and hopefully make it an animated short at some point, hopefully assuming Gene Simmons doesn't steal it. I should mention that I, I wound up getting a copy into the demon's hand. I saw that uh, yes. pre Christmas. And what he told me as soon as he put his mitts on it was, wow, this is really good. Do you have a lawyer? And I go, I don't have a lawyer, but I bet you you got a better one than I do. So if you're planning on stealing this, it's already yours, Gene. It's already yours. I love it. I, uh, I, I just, I wonder about, you know, Cody the Roadie Land mm. uh, at some point. Like if you could really blow this thing up and, you know, books and, and that and video games and then you get to the Cody the Roadie Land. Eventually we would just rebrand Callaway Park and yeah, it's Cody that, that, the that would be Land, the, That 100%. would be the natural, wouldn't it? Call, Callaway Park, if you're watching or listening, like I'm open to that conversation. <laughs> you we, would be, we can have that You talk. would be happy to have Absolutely. that. Absolutely. I'm readily available and no capital available. Who's the? What's the most interesting feedback you got on this, either from the person that gave it to you or the actual 
feedback besides what is his favorite vegetables? Mm. Um, you know what? I, I, I shared it at a, uh, at a high school or a junior high school, I should say, in Okotoks um, a couple of weeks ago. And, and as a part of that, I got to give a talk not only on what it's like to be a broadcaster, mm-hmm. what it's like to, to write a book, mm-hmm. um, but also like mental health. And, and I tied the whole thing together with gratitude because I'm, I'm just like, I'm so grateful for the whole thing. Yep. I really am. Yep. Um, and this will sound real corny, but I, I had a kid slip me a note um, after, after the talk and after having pers- you know, shared the book with them that, that just said on, on the sheet of paper, uh, thank you for your talk today. I didn't believe in gratitude before. Yeah. And honestly, that, that's, that's it right there. Like that's, that's what I'm most proud of. That's, that's what I'm most willing and, and, and excited to, to hang my hat upon is, right. is stuff like that is, you know, just being able to share a message with kids that like, Hey, you should, you know, you should try something like this. Um, you should bet on yourself a little bit. You should do the things that scare you, things you're unfamiliar with, and and find copious amounts of, of self-love and gratitude through that. What a great message about um, things that scare you. Mm. Because I, I talk about this often from, from youth sports and, and failure, that somehow we have demonized failure, yet mm. failure remains to me the biggest teaching piece we have it's it's taught me i am i am here because of failure i have failed very well over my life and i have learned from it and that whole idea of trying things that intimidate you or that make you nervous what a great message that is i feel like we can we can insulate ourselves way too often yes right and then create this this you know echo chamber almost yeah yeah well and and you create paralysis by analysis when you live in that fear right right? there's there's no getting out of that that's a that's a self-created cage and and once you start overthinking it um, stop betting on yourself, stop trying things and stop challenging yourself. Like there's no path out of that, right. unfortunately. So yeah, I, I think that's my biggest takeaway, not just from the book writing process, but from the last couple of years of my life is, is really just to challenge myself more and, and hopefully live a, I don't know, a life a little less built on fear. Cody, the roadie.ca. Yeah. There are still a few left. Got a couple. Okay. Got a couple. Okay. So if somebody sees this today or shares this today, you can still get them. Um, news that is not official. I don't believe this is written in stone, but it's still worth talking about. Uh, Ariel Halawane uh, reporting last week that Calgary in line to get UFC 289 on June 10th. It's the hot rumor. It's a rumor. Mm-hmm. Are you comfortable with it? I mean, I think so. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's sure a ton of smoke now. It would be strange if there wasn't a fire to go along with it. Like, right. It's really is starting to look that way. You know, there's a whole bunch of rumored bouts. You know, I think about eight of them now floating in total. Uh, for that card. Yeah, yeah, okay. four of which involve Canadians. So that that would tell me, like, you know, there's not only a Western Canadian event, which has been a terribly kept secret, but that it sure looks like it's happening here. Uh, June 10th, and and it's kind of nuts to think that that was, that. well, by the time we get there, that will have been 140 UFCs ago since we had the last one here, as far as pay-per-views go, anyway. And and did you were you at that event? 149, yeah. I was too. Were you? That, yeah. That'll go down. I don't, I don't know how many events you've been to, but that's nope, not just... That's it. <laughs> that's your only event. That's my only oh, UFC boy. event. Yeah, the, yeah. Well, so the bar is set very, very low for your next but one. But it wasn't for me. Mm. Um, it was a fascinating, because it's not me. It's not my sport. Okay. Uh, Pat Steinberg was kind enough at the radio station to take me with him, and he was you know, very much into it, and he was the guy that knew everybody. Um, it, was f- it was just fascinating because it was unlike anything else I'd ever been to. Um, it was just a different feel. It was 19,289 people or whoever, how many it was in that building at that night that weren't typically at Flames games or mm-hmm. Hitman games. They were just a different audience. Um, that made it exciting to me. 
um, being as close as we were, because we were sitting right ringside on, on the media side, um, you know, just to see things. Uh, and I apologize because my, my mind is a little foggy, but we had a, I think we had a knockout at the time. It was the fastest ever knockout mm-hmm. in UFC, like seven seconds in, and it happened right in front of me. Uh, the co-main event, if I remember correctly, it reminds me a little bit to get off topic into wrestling of Orange Cassidy and that little thing that he does where he kicks the guy in the shins. That co-main event was the like they just went to work on each other's shins, and it was right in front of me. I can see why somebody a couple rows back or whatever would go, "This is boring," but it was right in front of me, and I it just it was. It, I know it wasn't a very good. I know how many changes went into that. I, I know all of that, and I remember Tom Wright, who was the Canadian UFC uh, representative. We had a, and I knew Tom from the CFL, so we had a chat afterwards, and and he was apologizing to me, so they knew, and then Dana came out and he apologized right there, which was refreshing. You don't normally get mm. that. I I thought it was a great experience to go to, but I completely get where people, you know, here we are, what eleven years later, yeah. still connecting this of this possible event to that event, right? Yeah. As a make good, it'll be interesting to see how how much of a make good they treat it as, I yeah. guess, because they have been back technically, right? They brought a fight night. That's here, right, they uh, did just before the which pandemic. was TV, right? It was, and it was a, it was a really high caliber one. You know, yeah, you had Dustin Poirier in the main event. You know, it was a big star. Uh, Jose Aldo was in the co-main, I believe it was against Jeremy Stevens. Um, like they brought a, a very high caliber fight night. Th- those made for TV events are quite often. One great fight and thirteen eh, fights. Yeah. Uh, this was not that. That was that was a great event, and that felt like the make good. Yeah. Candidly, if we hadn't gotten this pay per view, assuming we do get two eighty nine, I would have been okay with that to be honest. Because I thought they brought a good enough fight night. We didn't need a pay per view necessarily. It felt like they'd kind of righted that wrong for those. So of is us. that so? Because it's not me making this up. This is mm. one of the quotes I was taking. You know, from the the reporting around it, that it's a make good. Is that a uh, kind of a non? fight perspective on this is that we, we remembered the pay-per-view and we know it didn't go well so this needs to be the make good does the fight fan feel that way i think it's just hinging upon w- what kind of a pay-per-view we get you know the way they've been dressing up pay-per-views lately they're they're not playing around you're getting real bang for your buck at least on the pay-per-view front right. so if they bring one of those here like yeah i mean it'll 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 dwarf what, what we had um with that fight night that came here and and uh, that'll be even more of a make good I, in my mind anyway They've made it good. Um, this is just gravy on top of it. Yeah. But. Well, it's kind of reestablishing back in the market because this would be the first Canadian post-COVID yep. pay-per-view, correct? Yeah, it would be, yeah. It'll also be interesting to see, like, not only who's available to fight on that card, but but what ticket prices end up looking like, especially up here. Because like you alluded to, first Canadian event post-pandemic, like, demand will be high, and, and they're charging crazier ticket prices than they ever have before in every other city, every other country. So I wonder what that looks like here, too. Yeah, I... I the other craziness in all of this, and, and not related, and I understand, but from a, a venue point of view, um, you know, this dilapidated needs to be replaced dump. Um, and I say that with so much love because <laughs> I do love the building. Uh, in the span of two and a half months, we'll play host to a uh, UFC pay per view, possibly an AEW house show, which we've never seen here before, and then a uh, WWE SmackDown event in August. It's it's crazy how it's kind of feast or famine right now. I'm really surprised by that, too. I'll be honest. You know, when, when they named the three potential cities, you know, maybe it was Edmonton, maybe it was Vancouver, maybe it was Calgary, I thought, surely we're at the bottom of the power yeah, rankings. Yeah, absolutely. You know, venue not honestly being the only reason. I thought maybe they'll come to Alberta because maybe it'll be easier to make an event happen here than yep. British Columbia. Sure, that makes sense. Yep. But surely they'll pick the, the sexier, shinier building three hours up the highway. Right. But somehow we get the 
phone call. I, I don't totally understand it. I think it's I think it's CSEC being aggressive in the marketplace. Think, I think okay. I think it's CSEC. I mean, you just look at all of the. I think they're. I think at one point, and I don't know this to be true, even though I worked there for four years. I don't know this to be exactly true, um, but I think for a long time you're there, and if they want to come through, they call you. But I wonder if CSEC's now playing a more active role of going out and trying to attract, uh, you know, because of COVID and trying to recoup, regroup all of that. But I think it also it doesn't hurt that whole conversation about an arena, mm. right, or a, a, an entertainment complex. If you, you have these things and, and you go, you know, we are attracting right now with the Wranglers here, they become the second busiest building in Canada, I believe, mm. just on venue, on, sure. on night, on day nights, right? I, I do kind of wonder, too, if, if some of our local flavor, as far as like the, the UFC roster goes, has helped that case a little bit, too. Well, tell me about that, because that I wouldn't be educated on. So, like, like I said, there's, you know, eight rumored fights right now, four yeah. involving Canadians, and that's not even including, you know, two of the local dudes. Okay. Uh, Mina Keem Dawadu and Chad the Monster and Helliger, you know, both of whom have trained out of Assassin's Creed here in town. Mm-hmm. Both have, you know, UFC fights on their record. We saw Chad fight on the Nate Diaz card uh, against Tony Ferguson last September. Um, neither gentleman has fought since then. They were both on that card. So that, that has to factor into the decision-making process too. Yeah, I mean, they're due to fight. It would make a world of sense to have them here. And a couple of guys hailing from Calgary is just another reason to do it Where do they do fit here. in everything, though? Are they up-and-comers? Are they considered challengers? Where, or, you know, because I don't think Dana White does things just for the sake of being cuddly and feeling friendly. Sure. So, so Ann Helliger is an alumni of Dana White's Contender Series. Okay. Uh, so would be on the rise. Lost his last fight, but was on, I think, like a 10 or 11 fight heater before that. So. Okay. An up-and-comer, for sure, and a guy with a ton of momentum. Uh, Hakeem's been on the scene for a minute, too. Fought in World Series of Fighting and then was an acquisition for the UFC from there. This would be his, assuming he fights at 289, probably his sixth or seventh UFC fight. So, you know, a guy that that Canadian fans are familiar with, two of the biggest, if not the biggest, Canadian names right now. Okay. Candidly, we don't. We don't have big Canadian MMA names right now. You don't have that that George St. Pierre, obviously, anymore. Rory McDonald's gone. Guys yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, Mark Hominick, no longer a thing. So um, it's not like it used to be where they, they'd roll through Toronto and you knew the, the yep. two, three, four Canadians that would be on the card. It's a bit of a different animal now. So where would these guys, if you were booking this, where would you be slotting these guys in on the card? I mean, both action guys with heavy hands. So so either guy could make for for a great curtain jerk fight, you know, okay. like have them open the main card or, or have them headline your prelims, something like that. They're, they're not opening the, the entire show, I don't think. I okay. think it's somewhere middle of the pack or, or on that pay-per-view card. I think local flavor makes a ton of sense there. What are, um, beyond them, I, I saw a couple of matches and it, it, it just... It doesn't mean much to me. It would mean more to you. What mm. are the rumored matches, and, and where do they fit? I mean, I think the only one with any with any name recognition to it, uh, candidly, would be uh, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, veteran of the sport, guy who's trained with Conor McGregor recently, karate mm-hmm. stance. Um, he's supposed to fight Michelle Pajaya, who's a guy who's you'd, you'd recognize his backflips in the cage and, yep. and some circus antics. They're supposed to be on the card, and I'd imagine that that's probably inside your your five main pay per view fights somewhere in there. But that that's a middle of the pack fight. Mm-hmm. I, I still don't know who headlines this thing. That to me is as a diehard is is pretty confusing. Yeah. You know, looking at it and just and, and looking at the roster, who's booked, who isn't, and keeping in mind their biggest tentpole event of the year is one month after this supposed event i just don't know who's available you know because you're saving a lot of your stars for july in vegas yep uh, what stars do you want to spend on canada knowing that you can't command a pay-per-view price or an exorbitant ticket price without some big names attached to it so who are those names 
Okay. Um, female fighters, or do we expect to see a number of female boats on this one? Yeah, I think so. There's, there's already uh, a, two women's belts already rumored on that card. And I think you probably see a women's strap here. Uh, if mm. Amanda Nunes wasn't here with the Bantamweight title fight, I'd be surprised. That's one that probably makes some sense. You wouldn't hold that to Vegas? I mean, you could. You definitely could. I just, th- I think that's one that probably makes some sense here. She's fought in Edmonton before, yep. so there's like a bit of there's a little know, bit provincial of familiarity. familiarity there. Yeah. So I think she would make some sense, and and she brings a, a a lot of credence and and whatnot. So yeah, she makes sense. I also think men's flyweight is another championship fight you could probably see here. Not booked. Guy named Brandon Moreno holds the strap right now. Okay. Really exciting young fighter. Probably makes some sense for a Calgary too, but you probably still need more than that. And I don't know. I don't know who that is. Dustin Poirier is available, so maybe he gets the phone call. I don't know what that'll look like. Um, this is why you are the insider. I am the guy from the outside that watches, and and you know the one that I had to chase down and go see was uh, was when Ronda Rose or when Nate Diaz fought Conor McGregor, right? Yes. Like, and then Ronda Rousey was on that card. It was a spectacular card. And, you know, that's the one that got, that's the one that motivated me to go find a bar that I could watch it at, right? So that got me out of the seat. What I'm finding right now is I don't feel like the UFC has that draw right now. Now, ebb and flow is probably the right way to put it. Where do you see the product in the history of UFC? Where are we at right now? It's apparently, uh, statistically, by the numbers, like white hot down in the States. Um, So I think we have a bit of a different camera angle on it. Again, back to just not only not having Canadian fighters, but but not having events up here. I think that that hurts our camera angle on it a little bit. You know, I think they've also, they've built this business model with with pay-per-views and and ESPN Plus down in the States and and guaranteed fight nights just about every weekend now. Um, as saturated as the product is, they almost don't need the superstars. They don't cultivate them the same way. Yep. There's, there's not the incentive. They just got to make sure there's fights on every Saturday night. Um, at the same time, like you still need big names for pay-per-views, like the one we're, we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You still need big names for that. So, you know, I don't think you're, you know, when they sold initially, right, when they, when they sold for that $4 billion, um, you know, I, I think when Endeavor bought them, that, that was about as hot as the product has ever been, right? Yep. You were at yep. Conor McGregor at his absolute apex. Uh, Ronda Rousey had just been head kicked the, the whole nine yards. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know that it's, it's as hot as it was then. I don't know you, that you have those must-see attractions, um, but I think there's more on the come-up, and I think a lot of those familiar faces, John Jones just showed it about a month ago, right. uh, still ready, willing, and able to not only step back in, but, but draw you know, you know, big numbers and, and put asses in seats. Let's talk about the theater and the, and the young fighters coming up. I, I think if you look at traditional sports, uh, you know, basketball in Canada is probably never been better in terms of his production of players. How much of that has to do with Steve Nash's back-to-back MVPs? Well, that's 15, almost 20 years ago. It takes a while for this stuff to happen. Dana White, UFC, investing in the, the weekly shows and, and the, the different camps and everything. Where are the fighters coming from now? What, are, are there new countries? Are there new styles? Or where is the young, young up-and-comers? Where are they developing? Yeah, this really has become a global sport. It's been cool to see. Like right, right now you've got, uh, just using the country of Mexico as an example, mm-hmm. you've got three Mexican champions right now. You go back three, four years, there, there was not only no Mexican champions, there, there really wasn't anybody seemingly on the horizon. So, you know, there's a sport that, or a country rather, that grabbed the sport and ran with it and got very good at it very quickly right you know i think uh as much as these athletes are coming from all over the world they're now building performance institutes in all these major you know continents too they, they put one in china they've got one down at the apex in vegas i'd be surprised if there wasn't one in canada at some point yeah i just think it makes a world of sense if you're looking to to cultivate
cultivate new talent, give them all the tools, you know, and make it readily available for them to swing past the UFC Performance Institute and use all the gear and the coaching for free. Uh, in theory. So I think that's where a lot of the talent is coming from is, is, is all over the world. And, and more specifically this Dana White's contender series they run in the summer, which has become, you know, a great content farm for them, but also a great way to just develop talent, put two prospects in the cage and essentially tell the two of them winners in the UFC losers going home. Yeah. I I feel like the old man who asked to, to quote or go back and reference the start of this product when I asked this question, but what's the, What's the discipline? What What's the major discipline now? Or are we fighting that, you know, instead of fighters being from a jiu-jitsu background, that they're really combination athletes, that they're really taking some from grappling, some from striking? Where is the discipline in the sport now? It's funny because, like, there's just, there's so few cases of a guy being, you know, only able to be good at one practice or one discipline. It used yeah. to be that if you were unbelievably good at that one thing you could skate by on that and it just isn't that kind of sport anymore um but what fascinates me is you still have guys coming from all different walks of life as far as combat goes you'll have you know guys who are based in karate or, or sambo okay you know guys who are, who are primarily jujitsu athletes who, who have to learn striking along the way um you know college wrestlers still mm-hmm. look at the ufc and go that's still the retirement plan like after yeah. i'm done on the college wrestling circuit i'll take these skills hone them and, and take them there um, I think wrestling still seems to be like the the primary discipline, it would seem anyway, or where a lot of the the kids are coming from, at least stateside. Um, but it's still so fascinating to me that you can still have some guys who have no background save for brawling in the streets. Those dudes are still out there, Yeah, too. they're out there, too. Where, what was your introduction? What was your on-ramp to, to the UFC? The Ultimate Fighter, funnily enough, the, the reality show. It was the reality yeah, show. Yeah, which will make a comeback alongside Contender Series this summer, right? McGregor against Chandler as coaches, which is a great, brilliant revival of the brand and a washing of Connor's brand, to be honest with you, too. But that's a great way to recruit a brand-new fan base. That's what got me in the door. Um, it was the BJ Penn and Jens Pulver okay. installation, which I think was the, the second or third incarnation of The Ultimate Fighter. Right. You know, they've gone on to have like 25, 30 seasons of that thing. It's, yeah. It's, it's technically it's like never, Survivor. Technically, it's never left TV, yeah, that's right. right? You yeah, go, oh, yeah. Survivor's still on, and yeah. so is The Ultimate Fighter. Yeah. But yeah, that, that was my foot in the door. I remember being in broadcasting school, um, buying the DVDs, thinking like, let's see what this Ultimate Fighting thing is all about, and yeah. the rest is, is absolutely history. And was that bad? They would end up fighting at a pay-per-view, right? The coaches uh, Penn would, and Pulver? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, be remiss if I didn't ask the, the, uh, Conor McGregor question, where, where does he fit in all of this? It's a great question. Yeah. And I don't know that anybody has the answer. I mean, there's a few different schools of thought. Some people would tell you that, um, this game moves too quickly for a guy not to be training. You know, that's a dude who spent a lot of time out of the octagon and a lot of time not training, just getting himself into jobs of trouble, Um, and and being a movie star, you know, and, 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 and being a celebrity. And and there's that old expression, you know, once, once you get used to sleeping in silk sheets, however that goes, you know, who would want to get out of them to fight that that's super fair too. So a guy who sits in the sideline that long and then tries to, to make a comeback can look pretty slow and, and out of pace in very short order. There's other people that would tell you this is exactly the kind of adversity that a dude like Conor McGregor thrives upon. Loves being counted out. Has never been better than when he's painted into a weird corner and everyone says, no way, and then knocks out Jose Aldo in 13 seconds. Right. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, just what version of Conor not only shows up on people's TVs this summer, but then more importantly, you know, what kind of Conor, assuming he headlines Madison Square Garden this fall, um, shows up in the octagon. That'll be interesting. Do you and maybe the people that you 
consume the sport with. Mm. Do you need Connor in the sport, or do you tolerate Connor in the sport? We tolerate him. Yeah, there, there was a time where I think we were very enamored with him uh, right. as a collective. You know, it was, he was he was the dude that helped break it through. Right. Um, you know, through to even more people. I think at this point now, it's you know, it's it's almost just a. Uh, it's it's not a good look, candidly. I think a lot of people associate that dude with our sport and yeah. the, those who, you know, really respect the sport and, and the athletes that come with it and know that it's uh, it's not just cavemen in affliction shirts running about causing trouble in the streets, you know, don't really want a guy like that representing our brand. At the same time, like, you know, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be foolish to tell you that that guy doesn't um, put rear ends in seats, you know, and isn't like a, a, a big, big part of the reason the UFC is – now, in combination with the WWE, valued at over twenty million or twenty billion dollars. Oh, we're getting to that. Um, it are, are, are we? Do we still have that guys running around in affliction, human cockfighting conversation? We've moved past that. Have Mercifully, we not? by and large, I think we've okay. we've seen ourselves out of that conversation. Because I, I mean, that was that's where it started for me on the radar, and and then you know we would do it on the radio in two thousand six, two thousand seven. It's human cockfighting. You can't do that. Mm. Um, but to me, I grew up. You knew, you know, in the 70s, you always knew the heavyweight champion. Mm. You always knew the heavyweight champion. You always knew the fastest runner, and you always knew the Kentucky Derby winner. Like, that was just it. And to me, it's, uh, I've, I've never seen, and, and, and this is going to uh, alienate a lot of boxers, and Steve Claggett has been so good to us, but, man, boxing was such a big thing in my life, and now it just seems hard to find it, mm. and it doesn't carry the same gravitas, yet I look at you know, this conversation about Conor McGregor reminds me of the conversation about Tiger Woods. Does golf need Tiger Woods? Does the UFC need Conor McGregor? Eventually, golf moves past Tiger Woods. Mm. Nice that he's playing. He's sure. going to be in the Masters and everything. Oh, great. Conor's coming back. Cool. But I don't get the sense that you are, and when I say you, I mean the royal you, are all salivating, waiting for Conor to come back and, and save the sport. That's just not the case. No, I think I think it's... Um it's an even further extension of where things were at with that first Diaz fight. There were a lot of people that were tired of Conor McGregor when he fought Nate Diaz for mm-hmm. the first time, and that's what helped put Diaz over was was the fact that he was the guy to... He was not a nice guy. End the run. And you're right. He right. wasn't a nice guy at the time. you know. And I, and I, I think in some ways we're, we're kind of back there in a weird way. I think there's a big chunk of the fan base that, it, that has turned on McGregor a little bit and now is is ready to see him out and is wondering if Michael Chandler will be that guy. Right. Um, that's the brilliance of a McGregor, though, if we're being honest, right? Everybody's too tuning in for one reason or the other because you know you've been with connor the entire ride or because you're so ready for the ride to be over right that i gotta pay my 60 70 bucks to you know to have my eyeballs on it when it happens i, I want to be careful about the next statement too i'm so afraid of, of pissing off the fan base because it deserves respect mm. and i think there was a t- moment in time where i thought the ufc was going to invest heavily in the world of pro wrestling and we're now we're going to cut promos and now we're going to do you know pull aparts and now we're going to do not to say that there aren't guys doing flips and you know celebrating fights and stuff but I, I i don't think that caught on you know the brock lesnar's and the conor mcgregor stuff i mean that was entertainment and it was really from the wrestling standpoint it, that didn't catch did it it's it's not it didn't become a thing right it didn't seem to no that 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 attitude era kind of approach to things right, right. I, I think i think 
mixed martial arts fans want that to an extent, but not to the point where it feels cheesy in any regard. Like, and it got cheesy for a bit. Yeah, man. I th- you know, I think you know when you mentioned Brock Lesnar, the, the the first the first instance that comes to mind is is him coming into the cage to challenge Daniel Cormier right. a couple of years ago, and I think that was a point where we all went. I was okay with Brock Lesnar being cage side, like that's cool. But the minute he comes in and yeah. pi- and, and picks a pretend fight with DC, that's the minute it's a bit too wrestling for for me and my ilk. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about it. Uh, this past. Monday became official. Endeavor and the WWE merge a $21.8 billion merger. Um, This has to be taken very seriously on a lot of levels. What does it mean to a UFC fan, this, this merger? I'm interested to see what what our sport can learn from from theirs. Candidly, you know, like I think I think it'll be interesting to see what the UFC can derive from from the WWE business model. You know, and, and just what that looks like from a fan experience standpoint. I think that's something that that Ultimate Fighting has tried to to cultivate, um, which is almost like that. I don't know if cult is the right word, but that you know that cult like fascination and following that that pro wrestling is able to command. I think they've got that lightning in a bottle, and mm-hmm. the UFC has it at times, but would like to find to have it more regularly. Yeah, if that makes sense. You know, I think there's a there's a great way for those two brands to work together. Obviously, if I were if I were a wrestling fan, I would wonder what that means for my roster. You know, because for the UFC roster. It's uh, it's been interesting to watch with with deeper pockets running the company about how it's really become about the bottom line, and, mm-hmm. and that hasn't worked in the fighters' favor. No, but there's been no point of unionization or or, or anything like that. The no. fi- you know the fighters haven't banded together, and I would wonder what that means for the rest. Those are two two very similar conversations that have been had about Vince McMahon and Dana White, right? That mm. that the the outspoken veteran will always go to you know how they're treated, the money that you know all of that sort of thing, but. You know, the history of wrestling, they just could never organize, right? And I, I think you're going to see more guys get cut cut loose. I, I think they're going to be lean. I, I, I think they're going to rely on some of the built-in HR and, and travel things that, you know, they can combine. Mm. The biggest one to me is broadcast. Mm. I'm really curious to see if they become the pothouse for broadcast innovation uh, because there are some similarities. They can get cameras into rings or need to be by rings and things like that. I, I'm very curious to see what um, what comes out of it in the next couple of years in terms of how we view these sports. I also wonder, yeah, yeah, for a TV deal, what that looks like too, right? Because the UFC's got one more year with ESPN stateside. Right. Uh, WWE has two years left on their deal, but yep. now you're able to take these two enormous properties and in theory, take it to a Netflix, an Amazon, whoever it might be that wants in on the live sports game and go, man, you know. Or do you, or do you try it again on your own? That's interesting. Or do you try it again on your own? I mean, you'd have the assets, right? And oh, you've got the WWE, you've got the inventory, right? Which you do with the UFC too, but the inventory goes beyond just the one, the one legacy. It's, you know, other, other wrestling promotions and things like that. And then... You know, you could become also a, a provider for others. Because one thing you know for sure, if you're the UFC or the WWE, is both of these fan bases have shown like they're very willing to pay a subscription fee. They're willing to Correct. pay regularly for pay-per-views Correct. and events, and, and they want that content. If you, if you will build them a library, they will come. Yeah. So why wouldn't you take these two gigantic libraries, fuse them together, and then charge whatever you want? You, you're right. You may not even need a Netflix. You might not need any help with I it. I think you have to look at it whether or not you could develop that technology yourself, mm. right? Uh, almost like BAM, like when, when Major League Baseball invested in their own 
you know, technology, technology, and and I thought that was a brilliant move on their part, and it was because they spun it off and sold it and all those sort of things. I I, I can't help but think that that wouldn't be one of the plays here, is at least to investigate that. I'll be curious to see what it means from an advertising standpoint too. Um, on the WWE side of things, you, mm-hmm. you would watch more wrestling than I would. Mm-hmm. I don't know how prevalent you know advertising is. You know, on the it's it is now. Yeah, it is now, and that's a technology thing, right? Because they they've been able to put the boards, the LED boards around the ring, and and things like that. So you you have in the last couple of shows started to see you know Mountain Dew or Cheetos or or whatever or the movies or whatever, which. You know, again, that was, I remember, like, that could have been the, the quickest argument I ever heard. My God, they're putting advertising on the, on the mat. And? <laughs> and what? And, and it's become a part of it, right? Honestly, at this point, like, the, the, the Octagon canvas looks like you could just remove it and then drape it over top of a NASCAR. That's exactly you know, it. Like, yeah, it's, that's it's got exactly that many it. advertisements on it. And, and, and now... And nobody pushes back. No, nobody does. In fact, at this point, they've doubled down. I don't know if you saw it yesterday, but now for about 1400 bucks, I think is what they're charging for it, mm-hmm. you can, as a fan, have your name put on the Octagon in, a, in microscopic print, and they'll charge you for I'm it. I'm sorry, for how much? $1,400. And then not only do you get your name on the octagon, which you can't see on the broadcast, it'll be way too friggin' small for that. Then uh, you get that tiny piece of the octagon in a frame mailed to you, and they'll do. See, that's the brilliance of it. it that is. is absolutely the brilliance of it, because because right? you know that guy's out there. You know he's out there. You don't think, and and you don't do it for every obviously every wrestling show. But if you did that at WrestleMania or something like that. Um, that would be huge in the collector world. Sell the it? whole canvas millimeter by millimeter and print money while you're doing it. Oh my God. It's brilliant. Yeah. It is brilliant. The other part that I wonder about is, is things like um, uh, clothing deals. Because mm. we remember the big argument and the big, actually, I'm, I'm wearing a Reebok, right? And the mm-hmm. whole Reebok uh, debacle, if you want to call it that. But now you have these two entities that sell a lot of merch yeah. and can produce a lot of merch. You know, you wonder about the Fanatics deal, because I believe both are under Fanatics, are they not? I believe so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, Ven- there's some real interesting synergy. It really is, yeah. You know, it, you, Venom is the uh, the in-cage provider for the UFC now, yeah. and, you know, and that, that was a, a super lucrative deal for them coming off of off of the Reebok deal. And, yeah, I mean, it makes you wonder, you know, where that can go and what kind of money that can make, you know, not only for those manufacturers, but when they're charging 60, 70 bucks a T-shirt at a live event now, like everybody except us is making copious amounts of money. Do you have any sense of, of what age group enters into fandom for UFC? I mean, mm. is it a teenage sport? Because that's the one thing I, I do wonder a little bit about is if you make recently the WWE made a lot of noise about going to PG 14 or, or whatever that is, M 14, whatever they wanted a little bit, you know, more racy content. I just wonder if you don't dumb it right back down into big giant characters like Hulk Hogan and King Kong Bundy so that you can kind of own that six-year-old market all the way up. Yeah, I wonder if that's if that's maybe almost the next step for them. You know, I think right now their ideal target fan is is a guy with a lot of disposable income. And right. I only base that upon what it what it costs to be a, a true diehard. Right. You know, one yeah. that, to you follow know, one that, it. the one that's paying for all the content, um, you know, that he's streaming, the guy that's buying all of the t-shirts, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's a guy with a, with a lot of money to be spending on stuff like that. But then, you know, it, when I look at the fighters that do cut through right now, you know, the guys that are on the cusp or on the come up, it's the guys that are great at streaming. It's the guys that are great on social media. And that to me would skew at least a little bit younger. Like the people that are consuming content like that and interacting with athletes that way uh, would be leaning a little bit younger. So I think you're right. I think the bigger you can make the personalities, 
um, the younger, in theory, you could skew the entire product. The last one, and it's almost the first thing that came out of the merger, was uh, co-branded weekends. Do you see that working? Could you have a you know a WrestleMania weekend tied into a big UFC weekend and just take over a town? It's interesting because like you know these these big sports events so often tiptoe around one another, right? The UFC yes. won't even put an event on Super Bowl weekend anymore. Yeah. It's just there's there's no sense in in trying to compete with that. Um, I, this past weekend we. UFC didn't have an event because WrestleMania, right? right? And right. and I wonder if there's if you run the risk, especially when Mania now is is a two night event, right? Like where exactly is there room for for more UFC viewing there? How much eyeball time can you really expect to get from the average person, even if they are your your P one, your absolute diehard? I don't know. I I really don't know. I also don't know if there's enough crossover there. Like that's the, the that absolutely you know, like I yes, don't know if I absolutely. want in on the wrestling game um, as bad as I as I want to watch mixed martial arts and vice versa. Like I don't know that the average wrestling fan is going. Look, man, Mania is already two nights. You want me to give you a third night yeah. of my time and my money for for Ultimate Fighting? Cool idea, but I'd rather watch it next. I, and I think that was one of the misnomers uh, from some in the what you I guess the non you know the non sports related media is they said oh well it's the same it's the same it's not the same fans mm. it isn't and that's part of the brilliance of it yeah is they brought two large fan bases into one group now and man if that right. venn diagram can exist at all right any crossover that exists it, copious amounts of money to be made from from the guy who wants to watch both of your enormous products yeah well and and who knows if if and when ufc 289 on june 10th gets announced and made official i wonder if we're going to see any kind of hint of that relationship at that event well that'll be the other thing right is is how do you cross promote like i'm i'm sure like there's no brainer ways of just plugging the next big wwe pay-per-view on on a ufc pay-per-view that's that's the easy stuff it's you know what wrestlers are you procuring to to have cage side at a UFC event? You know what what presence do you have there? Do you mesh the fan expos together and, and start doing big big get togethers like that? I wonder. Well, could it be the intros? Could it mm. be something as simple as you know? Do you set up your venue more like a WWE venue and allow? Because it was really cool. Two eighty nine. I can't remember. It was at least one wrestler that came out to Bret Hart's theme song, mm. but you know, they snake through the crowd yeah. as opposed to that giant stage where they come out and they have those incredible, I wonder if that's an adaptation that they might borrow. Well, I mean, that's, that's something the UFC's gotten away from. And I think it's something the fan base clamors for. We want more personality. I mean, yeah. honestly, that's, that's what sells. There's a precedent for it, you know, early mixed martial arts and, you know, in the early two thousands in Japan, that, that there was all kinds of pomp and circumstance, yep. pyro, you know, yep. entered songs, whatever it might be. Yep. Yeah. That, that's the part of pro wrestling. I think that, that is just the biggest, no-brainer to take and plug into mixed martial arts even if it's just the big events yeah let these right. guys have signature songs that they walk out to right there's, there's a bit of that like you know 149 here in calgary i remember uriah faber came out to california love yep. by tupac and the whole place went off yeah um there ought to be more of that there ought to be more you know goofy moments where israel adesanya comes out dressed as the undertaker yep. that shouldn't be a one-off that should be the kind of stuff that's happening on every major pay-per-view as, as long as we're not going to see Uncle Howdy and, and Bray Wyatt on UFC shows. They can stay in wrestling. I love them, but <laughs> just, I don't need the supernatural crap. Do we want Brock Lesnar back in the UFC? No. No? How old is he? Like There's fun 60? to be had. Yeah, but it's heavyweight MMA. You can fight until you're 80. I guess. Um, I don't know. Do you? You, uh, you tell me. It's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, 
that was one of the first conversations. What was re- what wrestlers would want to fight and what fighters would would want to wrestle. That's not a. It's not always a good mix, though. It isn't right I, to just I, assume that that's going to work. No, yeah, uh, I. You know, Brock was different. Brock was you know that wrestler that they groomed right out. Yeah, but uh, you know, you look at CM Punk and and what a big deal that was, and oof, how poorly that ended. The nice thing is now, if there's anybody on the WWE roster that has those CM Punk curiosities, now it's a whole lot easier to scratch them now. Oh yeah, same for company. Sure. Come for on sure. over. Give Come it on go. over. See give how it, it goes. Give it a shot. Spoiler: It won't g- go g- well. G- no, no, it won't. Um, all right. Before I let you go, uh, Rough House, how are things going over there? So good. Is it so fun? Yeah, is we, it? we had seventeen and a half thousand people for St. Patty's Day, which was, I mean, just just so much fun. Uh, Panther City in town uh, this weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, two regular, which is season. a possible playoff matchup. Uh, potentially, yeah, yeah. Playoffs clinch now, and and hoping for a home playoff date. And boy, the boys look good. You know, uh, for a season, we weren't sure what the team was going <laughs> to look like. They, they've been great. A lot of fun to watch. No, I mean, the last two years, they, you watched Dane Doby and and Curtis Dixon walk away, and those were supposed mm-hmm. to be killer blows. And you know, Bordy's done a really good job, and and Mouse has done a really good job. They they just keep. Fine in a way. Now, I would think they're a little more defensive structured than they were with those guys, mm. but it's working. And I mean, the guy between the pipes, is there anybody better in the league right now? Nobody better than Christian Del Bianco. Nobody. Right? Nobody. No. And he's speaking of personality, he's got a big personality too, right? They're, they're, you know, somebody ought to do more to capture some of those personalities. I don't know who that guy is. Um, uh-huh. yeah. mm. Mm. Uh, I just, okay, my criticism is stop presenting the game like minor league hockey and mm. start giving lacrosse its own perspective and, and broadcast. There are incredible stories there, just like there waiting are. waiting to be told. Big personalities that are just waiting for a oh, spotlight. absolutely, 100%. Um, speaking of big personalities and spotlight, uh, CJ92 presents Dungeon Wrestling tomorrow. Are you going to be there? Uh, actually, I'm up in Red Deer for, for Easter festivities, so I will oh, are not you? be there. Okay, yeah. well, I'll take care of the. Will Jesse be there? Oh, yeah. In oh. fact, if you could do me a solid because I won't be there yeah. to do it, if you could throw Jesse a clothesline, a tombstone pile driver. Whatever you would need. Just a quick stunner even on your way in or your way out. Absolutely yeah. happy to. Um, really, you were there the last go-round, and I, I we just started the show, and I came away, and I was just so blown away. It was so much fun. It, it felt like old-time small town wrestling it felt like the you know the pavilion was loud and full and they you know i know brett's got a hand in the booking but they gave you a really good match off the get-go which i thought just set that crowd on fire and that is as much fun as i've had in the evening in a long time they put on a great show that six-man tag match was a roar too yeah, right before the intermission and, and you're right that that room is perfect not yeah. just because of the history but honestly just the way it's put together is is just perfect for that kind of event yeah. you know it's so cool to hear you know Jesse was telling me he walked through with Brett shortly before the first event they had in there. Yeah. And, and Brett was pointing at, at spots where he used to, you know, yeah. hang out and watch as a kid, you yeah. know, when he was about yay tall. So just like the rich history in the pavilion, there's no better spot in town for it. I don't know if you can find a more um, diverse cross-section of fans in an event in the city. Mm. Yeah, because there was, there was lots, to that point about, there was lots of people pointing out to grandsons or kids, that's where I used to watch, or that's, you know, I sat there and that sort of thing. And um, it, it's the most unpretentious, 
you know, it's back in time. It's a back in, you could shoot a movie about the fifties in there, right. Without having to do a single thing to it. Mm. It just was, it was absolutely perfect. And they put on a good show. Like they really put on a good show. I love how generational wrestling is. You know, I, I, I wasn't raised a wrestling kid at all. Yeah. I, I don't have that, that childhood affinity to it. That so. was Jesse though. Right? It was big time. Yeah. yeah. So it's neat for me to see not only him, uh, you know, passing that along that love of wrestling and, and live events and also watching televised ones to, to his kids, but also to go to an event like that. And, and like you said, like see all the, these different generations, all these different walks of life coming back because at the end of the day, like everybody loves live wrestling. Everybody. Yeah, I know. It, it's fantastic. So uh, get out and check that out. What else you got going on? It seems like a lot. A book, um, you know, you're obviously in the UFC Insider. You've got the uh, Rough House and then you've got, uh, oh, there's the rest. There's the show. Yeah, the, the there's morning, the show morning radio that, program that, that too. It keeps yeah. going. Um, how do you how do you guys avoid the trap that seems to gobble up the rest of radio? Because you guys are still what I would consider a traditional morning show, what I grew up mm. with, kind of, you know, lots of stuff going on, you know, the right kind of, but also you own the town, like you mm. you prop the town. Uh, you know, everything else just feels like it's been uh, too many fingers on it. Right. Too many consultants, mm. too many, you know, oh, we, we had a research study and, you know, you got to say this more. You guys just feel like it's Jerry. It feels like Jerry's show is just continuing. Thank you for saying that. That means a lot. You know, and, and he's the guy who deserves the, the biggest you know, tip of the cap in all of it. You know, the, the trail that he blazed, you know, in, in having all that fun for all of those years and being so so community focused. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and just just driven by community. You know, a lot of people ask me, what well, what did you learn from Forbes? What did he teach you? Um, I mean, he taught me a lot of stuff, good and bad habits, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. But, but the biggest thing was always just, just, was just to make sure people are feeling good and having fun and, and to be helping people whenever and wherever possible. And I think those, you know, we have very, very simple filters for, for this radio show. It's just, it's just making sure everybody has as much fun as we're having in there in the room every single morning yeah. and making sure we're as involved in the community as possible. That's, that's it. I don't know that we have a secret sauce outside of that. We're just, and we're very good friends. Like we just, we have a lot of fun. I, I had a lot of fun working with Forbes and I've had a lot of fun over my radio career, but I don't know that I've ever had as much fun as I'm having right now, honestly. Which it comes across, right? Thank you. You can't, you can't fake that. Thank you. I, but, and that's, I'm not taking knocks at other people. It's just the business has changed so much that I, you remind me of what I say about certain broadcasters in hockey that they're, the, you know, thank God they got in when they did because they wouldn't be allowed to do it now. Mm. If you were coming into the business, you would not be allowed to do it that way. I think that quite often, actually, I'll be honest. Right? Over the course of any given morning, I go, I don't know that this is the way we're supposed to be doing it, but I think <laughs> yeah. we've been doing it this way for long enough. No one's going to correct us. So, CodyTheRoady.ca, there's still a couple more books. Uh, give them a, a tap on the shoulder. Oh, look at this. There, You can't see it. Mm. There's Gene Simmons, whose second line to you was, do you have a lawyer? <laughs> I think that's fantastic. So good. Yeah, CodyTheRoady.ca, if you'd be so kind as to buy a copy. Uh, all, the, all the proceeds to the CJ Kids Fund, and that, that lets us just do some, some incredible, really important work here in the city. You are such a good dude. Thank you for doing this. Brother, thank you for having me. Literally any time. Thank you. All right, pal. There you go. J.D. Lewis, he is our UFC insider. Once we confirm UFC 289, we will let you know. Of course, brought to you by, as all guests are, the Ski Seller Snowboard, skisellersnowboard.com, 76 years. Uh, three locations, McLeod Trail by Chinook Center, 17th Avenue Southwest, just off of 14th Street, Bow Ridge Road Northwest uh, by McDonald's. Uh, just by the wind sport there. Uh, you'll find it. Uh, and not just, hey, listen, it's not just skis and snowboards. No, no, it's uh, warm equipment. 
and keep you as you go out into the uh, hinterland here, even in the spring. You can always use a good deal, right? Uh, in just a couple of moments, our NHL insider, Eric Dahachuk, will join us live in the Oodle Noodle Studio. How often can you say that? You're live in the Oodle Noodle Studio. Butter chicken, mac and cheese, Kung Pao noodles, Bangkok Pad Thai, classic vegetarian and gluten-friendly options. Two locations in and around Calgary, 1244 17th Avenue Southwest, 105 Main Street North in Airdrie. Pickup and delivery. A reminder, this is Thursday, not Friday. I don't know if I need to remind everybody, but somebody's going to go, well, hold on. Wait, why is this show on Thursday? That's because tomorrow is uh, the Easter weekend, so we are back on our regular schedule next week. Um, looking forward to our uh, Wednesday show in particular, uh, as Billy Jaffe from Nesson will join us. We'll talk to him about the, particularly the eastern side of the National Hockey League. And in studio, we are expecting goaltender extraordinaire Marco Carducci. Marco Carducci will be. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film. If only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Joining us uh, next week. Uh, as we uh, continue to uh, roll along, um, just to, the one number, and I, I might actually bring this up when Eric joins us, the, the one number that jumped off the page at me, not number, it was a stat, and uh, there's not a lot I like about Sportsnet anymore. Uh, I'm just grumpy. Uh, but one, if you're following anybody or anything from them on social media, follow their SN Stats uh, Twitter account because there's some great stuff that they throw out there. Um, January 18th, the Winnipeg Jets, Winnipeg Jets, first overall in the Western Conference. January 18th, first overall in the Western Conference. And here we are, uh, April 6th. And they are tied, technically tied with the Calgary Flames for the second and final wild card spot. Um, however, they have the tiebreaker there. But that's a fall from grace. That is the opposite of the story we tell about the 2018 St. Louis Blues. That is not the same story we tell. 
Um, and what else was I going to remind you? The Roughnecks are playing this weekend. And, oh, yes, uh, Calgary Hitman. If you are so inclined, if uh, wrestling's not your thing, you're not coming to the Pavilion tomorrow, uh, you might want to go up to Red Deer and cheer real loud because the Calgary Hitman could use you. Uh, falling last night by a 6-1 score um, without their captain right now, without some of their best players. Um, it's a, a long road to hoe. They're down to the Red Deer Rebels by a 3-1 score. I think that's pretty much where everybody was kind of figuring this whole thing would end up. Having said that, it is junior hockey, and who knows what will happen. Uh, we go back from guest to guest. I love it. Um, and we bring in yet another insider, NHL insider. Of course, uh, our guest brought to you by Ski Seller Snowboard, skisellersnowboard.com. 76 years in Calgary, three locations, McLeod Trail by Chinook Center, 17th Avenue Southwest, just off of 14th Street, Bow Ridge Road Northwest, by McDonald's at the bottom of Winsport, and uh, skisellersnowboard.com. And here's one of the most awkward, clunky segues ever. Our next guest came to Calgary to cover skiing, I believe, to write about skiing. Did you not, Eric DeHadjuk? That is correct, yes. 1978. Okay, not 1946. That's yeah. them. They've been around for a while. And here, and here you are. Welcome home. Yes, yes. Well, it's nice to be back. And I was thinking, I haven't been out skiing yet this year. And still con- time. conditions look pretty good. And uh, I'm going to have to wrap my head around the fact that uh, I want to drive into winter. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but no, you're right. In 1978, uh, I had just graduated from journalism school. I was a summer student at the Toronto Star, but looking for a full-time job, and they had a hiring freeze on. And the Calgary Albertan, long live the Calgary Albertan, yeah. Lynn Watson was the sports editor at the time. And I've told you this story before, but maybe not on the air, that, uh, you know, he called me. And I, like, I'm a Toronto kid, right? Yeah. So, uh so he said, uh, do you, you know, how do you feel about skiing? I said, well, my, you know, my parents emigrated from Austria. We, we have done a fair bit of skiing in our lives. And uh, he says, good, because I need a ski rider. All my guys want to cover curling. <laughs> now, again, as a, as a Toronto guy, I thought he was making a joke. So I did, did the obligatory, <laughs> and then there was like five seconds of dead air. And I thought, hmm, I may have made a mistake. <laughs> well, of course, once yeah, I've been in Calgary 45 years, I soon learned that... Curling is a very serious <laughs> e- enterprise here. Yes. And, and, but I also realized that why they needed a ski reporter was because you did have to get out to the mountain. And in those days, it wasn't like it is today. You know, you had to stand at the, the bottom of the hill with your notepad, no tape recorders, no cell phones, you know, jotting down notes, interviewing people in the cold. Your pens are freezing. Yet you ended up, you know, the, one of the first things I learned was bring a pencil because a pencil wouldn't freeze. Right. Now, a pencil tip could break. But anyway, it, it was just a, a different time. And I really enjoyed it. I honestly, I tell people all the time that those first two years um, while I was making nickels and dimes were two of the most enjoyable years that I ever had uh, because that was the heyday of the crazy Canucks. I got to know Ken Reed quite well. We're only three weeks apart in age, so we have a lot of shared background. And uh, and it was Ken Reed's prowess on, on the World Cup circuit that got me assigned to cover the Olympics in Lake Placid in, in 1980. So as the, the, the junior man on, on, on any staff is not going to be assigned a plum assignment like that, but, but Reed was a favorite in, in the downhill. And, and because the Albertan was a small publication that could only send one reporter, they said, we're sending you, but then you're also going to have to cover the men's Olympic hockey team and figure skater Brian Pokar. So I traveled with that 79-80 Olympic team, which had Glenn Anderson yeah. on it, Jimmy Nill, Paul McLean, Tim Waters, Randy Greg, that was a really good team. And um, I, I actually saw the Americans 
that won the gold medal in 1980 play seven times before the Olympics. And I checked with a lot of my American colleagues, and most of them had only ever seen them play once or twice, and some not at all before they got to, to Lake Placid. In fact, if you watch the movie Miracle, you know, there's a scene where Herb Brooks is feuding with reporters all the time. Well, I, I was one of them. Herbie was really mad at me one time because I wrote a kind of a, a, a critical game story, not just of the Americans, but of the Canadians, because there was a brawl at the, at the corral during the series they had here. I think it was the game where Bob Suter broke his leg and had to be carried off the ice. So anyway, uh, the skiing gig at the very beginning of my career got me into the hockey gig. And then, you know, after the Olympics in, in 1980, which was, you know, an, an incredible event to cover as a 24-year-old kid, um, the Flames arrived nine months later and, uh, you know, I've been covering the NHL ever since. Rest yeah. of the say is history. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, I. there's three things. So as a ski reporter, mm-hmm. you just covered races and results, but you uh, wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't travel, right? You would just go to the mountains here? Uh, yeah, in the beginning, but I, I did go to Whistler in 1979. Okay. There, there was, that was supposed to be the first World Cup race not in in, in, in Europe. Right? Okay. So that was that was right around the era where, you know, before Canada had hosted any World Cup races. And and, and Ken Ken Reed was a, a big part of yeah. uh, of promoting that along with uh, I think it was Serge Lang who was running the uh, the International Ski Federation at the time. And uh, and I did go out and, and cover uh, the race in Whistler, but it ultimately was cancelled because because of a lack of snows. It was right at the end of the year, gotcha. and uh, so you talk about great assignments. <laughs> For four days, I think to Whistler, skied every day, and <laughs> and there was no event to cover. So I, I ended up writing nothing but postponements, which was you know, um, not great for the newspaper, right? But for you know the kid that was out there skiing on somebody else's dime, it was it was pretty great. So, but the other thing is to, to, just to, to complete yeah. the thought, there there was also a. Um, what's the word for it, a promotional side to the thing, because every Tuesday, the Calgary Alberta, and I believe the Herald did the same thing, had, had, had a ski page, because yeah. there were a lot of, a lot of, uh, all, all of the, the resorts, and, and plus the, you know, the, the yeah. ski seller, sure. and all of the, manu- the manufacturers, they all advertised in the newspaper in those days, and there had to be content that would support those ads, so, so you would also, uh, you know, spend part of your week writing that. So there, yes, there were events to cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to, I guess the honest to God truth is that <laughs> probably the promotional stories were most important for the business plan of, sure. of the newspaper. Those were the things that they, they right. cared the most about, but, uh, uh, but th- they were all always fun to write too, and uh, and and uh, you know I got interested in, in equipment because of that. I remember in those days the downhill racers. There was a period of time where they had these little notches in, in the in the tips of the skis, and it was to create you know a, a better you know Airflow. aerodynamics yeah, yeah. Uh, to it. And I remember asking Ken Reed about that. I said it looks you know crazy, and he said, well, you know they've tested it in the early versions of wind tunnels and and you know you get it you pick up a tenth here and a tenth there and and i soon realized that in that sport if you can pick up a tenth here and a tenth there that's the difference between being on the podium and being sixth right so olympic hockey teams brawled they didn't that particular one you know there there was a that wasn't common though no, 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 okay. no, no, exactly. Okay. And that, that yeah. was, the, as, if I remember, I wish I had it in front of me, but I, if I remember, that was the premise of the piece. You know, this is, you know, that yeah. was the, you know, that was, you know, 
couple of years after the the, the Broad Street bullies. So the, the you know the, the NHL game was was as rough and tumble as, as it's ever been at, at that stage. And the mm-hmm. whole idea of, of international hockey was it was supposed to be a purer version of it. And, right. and the American players were all college players. And, and a lot of the Canadian players had been recruited from, uh, from the U.S. college system. But, but it just goes to show, Rob, that you know, rivalries uh, can uh, elicit real emotion. And, and those teams didn't really like each other. That was one of the really uh, unfortunate things about that competition because those teams played some great games against each other um you know people in calgary had a chance to see three of them i think i saw one in hibbing and uh and fargo at at the (laughs) university of north dakota campus there you know again as as a young kid sure getting a chance to to go to these different venues was absolutely fascinating and, and and really um illuminating um but but there was some really really fun hockey played by those teams, and then they never met in the Olympics because the Canadian team was eliminated before that crossover thing. Again, the format of the Olympics in those days there was no actual playoff. The two top teams from each pool advanced. You didn't play the team from your own pool again. You just crossed over and played the other two teams, and at the end of it, it was whoever had the you know the the best record. And that's yeah. why the Americans, after they beat the Russians on that Friday afternoon, still had to go back on the Sunday and beat Finland. I don't know if people. Re- how no, many people, people realize lots that. of people have forgotten that yeah. everyone thinks that the miracle on ice took place on the friday which it did because that's al michaels you know do you believe in miracles but if they had not been able to defeat finland on the final sunday you know russia could, just, have, exactly. could have still slid in and yeah. got the gold yeah so what a crazy and, story well and and it was partly because of that uh, that ultimately you know the the olympic format and the world championship format uh, were changed you know that used to just be you know points in the standings and you got to a situation like you did in, in the calgary olympics in 1988 where russia had won the gold medal before the final game and put up a half-hearted effort in that final game lost and and you know it, it affected the the final medal standing. So uh, I think at that point, uh, um, you know, the, the International Ice Hockey Federation realized that they needed to adopt more of a single elimination uh, format. And, and I think that's what hockey fans like too. Yeah. The third thing. Okay. It's Perfect. amazing that you can remember the third thing. Cause I would have, if I had no, said three, I, there are three things I would have forgotten the second and the third first, thing instantly. The first thing <laughs> I, I thought for some reason, I thought you were going to tell me that you had to go measure the snow for the snow report. Oh, no. The, no, no, okay. No, so you no, didn't no. have to do that. No, I, d- I didn't do snow reports. Other people did. Snow reports were a big deal. They were well, a big deal, Especially right? on radio. I mean, yeah, you know absolutely. that. Absolutely. And, yeah. and in, the, you know, in the newspaper, it'd be part of the sports sure. column, yeah. right? I, I did not have to do okay, that. Thankfully, that Thankfully. Would have, that would have involved getting up early, right? Right. Well, exactly. <laughs> the brawl at the corral involving two Olympic teams. The third is, tell me, uh, tell me about Herb Brooks. Be- and the reason I ask that question is... I don't know what to think. I know people who played for him at the NHL level, yeah. and he was not popular. And we both know coaches that aren't popular but are successful. What you know? What was Herb Brooks like to cover? What was he like to be around? Well, so you know, it was for me. It was a different experience in 1980, uh, covering you know what he would consider the you know the the team that the opposing team. Um, you know, very brusque and difficult to deal with. Well, what happened was so <laughs> so after that column ran. He wouldn't talk to me. So what he used to do was he'd send Craig Patrick out. <clears throat> Craig Patrick was the assistant coach. 
Craig Patrick became a very influential person in, in the national hockey no league. No kidding. And I, I got to know Craig Patrick <laughs> because he was the guy that was coming. And, I, you know, again, we were traveling. The Herald wasn't. So so a lot of times there'd be one reporter at these things, and it was, it was you. this guy. <laughs> and and Herbie wouldn't talk to me. So, so you know, it would be Craig that would come out. And, and you know, he was never a great interview. But, you know, when you start to develop mm-hmm. a relationship with someone that early on, you know, it, it, it helps. Sure. You know, you eventually ended up running the Rangers and hired Herb to, to coach the team. But what I will tell you, though, is that our relationship relationship changed and evolved and at the end um we were you know we we were well acquainted and and there was no issues at all like we you know i think after a while we'd just both been at it for a long period of time and and uh i don't know you know i mean it was, it was a different era in those days yes. Rob, because yeah. I, I mean every like to do this job you have to have a certain backbone right and 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 there's, you know, some people in the industry like and respect that, and some people in the industry mm-hmm. don't want that. They want to steamroll you. And so if you put your hand up and say no or, you know, or write something that's critical, and of course in those days too, it's not like today where, you know, a lot of things are done remotely. If you wrote a critical story on player X or coach Y, the next morning you were down at the practice so that they could let you have Absolutely. it. I mean, it was, it was just a different era. So you yep. developed a thick skin, and that was just part of part of the job. But, but I'll never... The, the other thing that I remember most about about Herb was so you know he had this this great career and then he came back and he coached the American team in Salt Lake City mm-hmm. and if you recall the Americans had a really great round robin mm-hmm. and they were they were you know the hometown team they were they were favored to win Canada had a very um, you know, circuitous route Gretzky to the final. Calling out people, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, and then and then you know, Belarus upsets Sweden, and now the Canadians don't have to play Sweden in, in, yeah. in the in the in the semis, and then they get to the final and and they beat the Americans in a you know in a very dramatic fashion. So one of the great stories of my life, you know, Canada. Uh, I was writing for the Globe and Mail in those days, so you know, writing for the national newspaper. It's been 50 years since Canada won a gold medal. You're in Salt Lake City, 90 seconds to go, and spontaneously people start singing the Canadian National Anthem. Very, very cool. Um, afterwards, Wayne Gretzky reveals the, the the tale of the loony. As a writer, you raise your hand and say, okay, thank you very much. We, we <laughs> ding, can, ding, ding, we've we got can, a winner. We can work with that. So, but, so... You know, the next day, or I think it was even two days later because it was so difficult to get out of there. Um, we're leaving Salt Lake City. The airport is jammed. Security is is really tight because this is soon after 9-11, 9/11 right? Yeah. So so it was a really, it was a difficult Olympics to cover on that level because security was so ramped up. There was there was just a fear of, of terrorist attacks. Everybody was was on pins and needles throughout the, the whole competition. So imagine two uh, long security lines and everybody has to go through them, whether you're the coach of the American team or, or just a writer covering it. So Al Strachan and I are in l- the left line and Herb Brooks is over there in the right line and he sees us and he waves and he comes over to our line and he's upset because of that story that had made the rounds about the the American women stomping on, on the Canadian flag and he was so upset. Oh, really? He was so upset so he came over and he said our girls would never do that. That is just that's just false. And so we thought, you know, we, you know, we were sort of, you know, you know, great tournament Herbie, you know, great <laughs> great swan sign everything else. and that was the one thing that was on his mind and it yeah. was just and 
and and I had to believe, you know, like that 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 it had to be true because he was so worked up about it. And and you know, we yeah, we you know, he, he's like a lot of people after about you know five minutes that you know the steam engine slows down and and away you go. But I was struck by that. So Strack and I are there, and Herbie's over there, and and that's what that was what was on his mind the day after this really heartbreaking loss sure. for the Americans in, that's where in Salt Lake. Yeah. So I, I mean, I had a great admiration for him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was elected to the Hockey Hall of Fame. I was yep. on the selection committee when uh, when he was elected. Uh, yeah, he was a, he was a, an, an interesting character, and um, yeah, I think I thought you know the uh, you know there's there's been several movies made. Um, I remember the Carl Malden one didn't really ring true. Okay. Um, the 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 other one, Miracle. Uh, yeah, with uh, with Kurt Russell was closer to my perception. Of, of what went on there. But having said that, I wasn't, you know, in the rinks with Team USA in Europe when he was doing those skating drills. But he, he, he was a hard man. Yeah. He was a hard man. And the other thing, I guess, is that when Bob Johnson came here to coach uh, in, in 1982, uh, and he became the first American to, uh, <laughs> you know, to, to coach in Canada, and, you know, that kind of paved the way for, for her Brooks to get, it, get into the NHL. They were longtime college rivals. And really didn't like each other. Oh, really? Oh, they really... They aren't the same person. Really didn't like each other. <laughs> and, and someone told me at the time that the only time they ever saw the two of them smile at the same time was at Mark Johnson's wedding. Really? That, that, that Herbie was invited. And, uh, and uh, so they... Now, whether you know, that continued, but, but in the beginning, there was an, that, that rivalry from the U.S. college ranks spilled over... Uh, in, in into the NHL, and you're right. Their their personalities were completely different. Herb Herb had one approach, which you know most people saw it in the movie, and and Bob Johnson was the opposite. I mean, yeah. the way Bob Johnson coached then, yep. you see a lot of that now, right? The player, you know, the so-called players coach. The you know, we're, oh, we're, he was way ahead of time. way ahead of his time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But but he, but it was an anomalous for the NHL sure. at the time, yeah. and yeah. and it took some of the players a, a long time to adjust to to that voice and, and that approach because most of them had come through the system, you know, junior hockey, it was tough, 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 and now you're in the NHL. So so all of a sudden you have this Mr. Positive and, and you know, like a lot of, I think in the beginning there was a certain amount of suspicion. Was it being put on? Yeah. As you got to know Bob Johnson, you realized that was just the fabric of the man. That, that's just who he was. You know, right. he, he didn't have a... Uh, you know, an artificial bone in his body. He would just, he would show up in the morning, you know, and, you know, everybody would be dead tired and he'd be, you know, it's a great day. For, I mean, that was literally true. He, that whole, it's a great day for hockey. That, I must have heard it a hundred times uh, out of his mouth on days when, when it didn't feel like a great day for hockey. It didn't feel like a great day for an early flight. It didn't feel like a great day for anything. And he's in there pepping everybody up. It was, it was quite an extraordinary couple of years uh, traveling with him and, and, and covering Bob Johnson for sure. <sighs> This is why you were the first guy I called when I said I'm coming back. (laughs) Just to tell the old stories? No, no, but I was going to ask you about Kurt Russell, and you got there. Because there's not a lot of hockey movies where we can go, well, I knew him, right? So you're able, Carl Malden, great actor, wrong guy. Um, Daryl Sutter becomes Uh the uh, coach with the most games behind the bench, passing Uh Bob Johnson yesterday. Peter Marr and I were talking about it. Mm We got to Bob Johnson through Herb Brooks. Yeah. 
Now you can tell one of my favorite stories. Okay, what's which one is that? <laughs> the um, losing streak and and uh, oh, the Bob Hartford calling one. calling yeah. you and uh, shaky in. Oh yeah, well, that, that, I mean, it was just the the, the usual post game. So um, yes, so in 1986, the year that eventually the Flames made it to the Stanley Cup final for the first time, they had uh, you know one of the one of the longest losing streaks in, in in team history. It was it ended up being 11 games. The 11th game was a was a nightmarish. Lost to to the Hartford Whalers. Yep. I remember Dean Evison had a had a really strong game that day. David Babbage had a strong game. They lit up Reggie Lemel and and uh, you know the the quotes from the Hartford dressing room was just a whole lot of sympathy for for Lemelin because he played so so well for them for so many years. Um, and again, in those days, uh, you interviewed the coach in his office after the game. Right. So you know now we you have the banners yeah, and and, and so stuff. on and so yeah. forth, scrums, um, in house media. It, it's it's crowded and and it's very formal. But in those days, you know, the you you walk in and Bob's behind the desk, stands up, and George and I are on the other side of the desk, and we're the only two writers in there. And uh, and and I, I want to say before we even had a chance to ask a question, or we were starting to mumble something about <laughs> like, is this the bottom, or you know, some mm-hmm. you know the generic question that you might ask in that situation. He just goes off on too much is being made of our so-called slump and and that just stopped george and i in our tracks because they had you know they had lost like it was a horrible loss they had lost 11 in a row or whatever it was and 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 they were just sinking fast i mean that was a, that they were having a really good season up until the middle of december and all of a sudden now it's the middle of january and yep. and, and nobody can put two feet in front of each other anymore and so it was it, 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 as i say we were we were paralyzed <laughs> because what else can you say? And uh, it's funny you, you mentioned that because I was just rereading. Uh, George Johnson did a book, The 100 Things You Need to Know About the Flames, and that was one of the 100 things, and I was just rereading <laughs> his account of it, and, and it, it, it jived completely with uh, with my memory of it too. There are certain things, like so much blurs in 45 sure years, does. but some things just stand out as if it happened yesterday and I can still hear him saying that and and we were practically on the floor I don't think we were laughing but we were just I mean I can't think of another way of putting it we were paralyzed because this was just the the ultimate example of of Bob trying to spin a negative into a positive and and actually that was the last game they lost they you know they won the next game I believe 5-4 they'd called up Mike Vernon and they got back on their feet, yep. and then the next thing you know, you know that your friend Perry Barazan scores the, <laughs> the you know, greatest goal in Flames history. The greatest goal in Flames history, and they're in the Stanley Cup final with Vernon against Patrick Waugh talking to his goalpost. Again, pretty remarkable season to cover for sure. But as someone who never met or covered Bob Johnson, okay. it goes back to what you said about the fabric of that story, I believe to be... <laughs> The man, yeah. like there was no pretense. He wasn't, no. you know, we get yelled at by coaches all the time or you guys are making a mountain out of a molehill. Yeah. He truly believed. Oh yeah. <laughs> they were not in a slump. He thought we were exaggerating. Well, and I will say this, you know, that the, the, they lost five in a row before Christmas and, uh, and then they went on the Christmas break and they were really unlucky. Like some of those losses were sure. really unlucky. Yeah. They, they, they shouldn't have, it shouldn't have, they shouldn't have lost, but they did, you know, mm-hmm. a bad goal, a bad break goalie standing on his head. So they're at, you know, five, losses 
in a row and not really playing all that badly. But then the next six games, they really started playing badly. So, <laughs> so they played when, to the level. <laughs> when, when all was said and done, it added up to no points in the standings for close to a month. Well, you know, that, that can undermine you. you yeah. And again, yeah. A, a different time. You know, I, I think in a 32-team NHL, if you went a month without getting a point, that would probably eliminate you from the playoffs. But you did have the opportunity in the 21-team NHL to recover because 16 16 the playoffs. Yeah. yeah. Um, to Daryl in the 401 games, tip of the hat, it's always something when you are the, the leader in franchise history. Should we talk more about the franchise history? That, that a team that's been around for 40-plus years, the most games that a coach has ever coached behind the bench is 401 and counting? Isn't that a little off? Well, yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on how you look at the profession of coaching. You know, so there's the the one way of looking at it is it's the co- it's the hired to be fired profession, mm-hmm. and there's been a lot of that here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's been you know other situations like uh, you know Nashville coming yeah. into the league and you know the turn of the century, and it was basically Barry Trotz there for a while and. Peter Laviolette, now John Hines. So, you know, a lot of stability. Um, no championships. Yep. Came close a few times. Had yeah. some, had some, you know, President's Trophy winning teams and some some very good teams, but but never got over the top. So I, I would say that there's no one right or wrong way. Um, and and you, you know, you know, think so. A, a week and a half ago, I was in uh, Anaheim and had an opportunity to speak at length with. Jared Bednar, mm-hmm. um, and for a story that I'll publish in The Athletic at, at some point before the playoffs about, you know, the challenges of, of, of defending. And one of the things that came up in the conversation was, you know, his first year behind the bench was one of the worst seasons in modern NHL history, 48 points. Yep. And uh, and and he was, you know, hired at kind of at the 11th hour, and he was kind of, he was, he was kind of an unknown. We knew him, you know, because of his, uh, you know, the ties here, being an yeah. assistant in Abbotsford, and, yeah. uh, and he had won uh, in the AHL with uh, Cleveland uh, the year before. So he, he had, you know, and, and he was one of those people that I really admire, because I, I, I like... I, I admire the success stories of someone that touches every rung on the ladder up there. So think about, you know, his playing career, you know, you know, f- four junior teams over a three year period. And then, you know, all those years in minor pro yep. and then, you know, 11 years of apprenticing for the, I mean, he, he, he did not take, you know, the, <laughs> he you did know, not take the, the did, express. He, well, he didn't take the elevator. No, to the he top. sure he, did he not. He touched every rung on yep. the ladder. And then his first opportunity, you know, the team has 48 points and it's just a disaster. So, you know, Good for Joe Sackett, the manager there, you know, trusting in his original decision, realizing that that was one of those years where everything that could go wrong did go wrong, mm-hmm. and stuck with him. And you know, I think it was you know about it was only a few days after I talked to him that he'd signed that contract extension, and he's going to be making millions of dollars for for, for a number of uh, of years going forward. So I do think that having faith in in your decision. You know, did we hire the right guy? And if it doesn't work out right away, you know, do we want to push him to the exit or do we want to give him another opportunity? And I think that, you know, what Colorado did with Jared Bednar should be a lesson for for lots of teams that sometimes you, you know, you you don't take the expedient path, but but you take what you think is the right path and stick with someone and, and let them find themselves at the NHL level. And by the way, you can also help them by getting them better players. Well, (laughs) that's a huge part. And, and, you know, how I would illustrate that is when Jay Feaster brought Bob Hartley on, a young John Cooper was kind of 
you know, in the weeds and, and would be hired eventually by Tampa. And I yeah. think he just celebrated 10 years as the head coach of the Tampa Bay Lightning, right? Yeah, yeah. he's had a pretty good run there, too. He's right? not bad, yeah. Yeah, but, you know... But, but again, surrounded by the right players. Sure, and, and you know, when you think about it, it, like John Cooper was the second young coach that they hired there. Yep. And, uh, and the first one didn't really work out, right? So, you know, I, I think that that's... Um, you know, it, it, it is an inexact science, and you don't know how uh, a coach's message is going to resonate, and then and then you don't know how long it will resonate because eventually, uh, even for the best coaches, it, it, it runs out, and, and then you yep. have to make a change. But uh, um, but yeah, there's just so many different ways of going about coaching. So back to your original thing, like uh, it is important that you know that you you know you set a franchise record for uh, um, you know for, for for coaching and now you know in Daryl's case it was over you know like two two, two different stints exactly yeah so that might it's a little odd <laughs> well or it changes it a little bit i mean yeah. you know that, that's that you can you go home again well you know i guess you can um it's been an interesting week for the local hockey heroes um, <laughs> to say the least <laughs> i um, i said it off the top today last night was the team that i thought we were going to see uh, the goalie played like the goalie we mm-hmm. thought we were going to see. Yeah. It, it, it also, we did a show yesterday where we were talking about that Chicago game and just baffled by it all. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they, they do not hold, the, they, they don't control their own destiny now. No. That, that's something they've given up. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, I just don't even know where to start anymore. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you, you that's your starting point because I don't know where to, to take it from here, to be honest with you, because it's the same thing, you know, <laughs> There was a part of me, because this has been such an upside-down year, I I said to somebody, uh, um, I said, you know, here's what will happen. They'll lose to Chicago, they'll beat Winnipeg, and... And because that that's been that's, that's been, the year that's the year exactly yeah. you know so the game you should win you lose the game you know like you know you're traveling uh, they're waiting for you uh, you know they have as much on the line as you do uh, you know they can put you away and they find a way of winning that game and they find a way of losing the other game so again we're in the analysis business so we're trying to come up with with good logical rational explanations for for why things have unfolded the way they have this year and and I. I'm, I'm like you. I'm baffled. I, I really don't know. Now, I would say this. You know, the, 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 you know, the, a lot of times when when a, when a team has a year like that, and, and Winnipeg's had a couple of months like that. Too. Yes, you know, they have. When you think about where yep. they were, I mean, they were the top team in the conference for a period January of time, 18th. right there. Yeah, and then all of a sudden now they're on the cusp of, of missing the playoffs. So how did they go off the rails so badly? I. In the days when I was actually covering a team, traveling with the team, in the dressing room with the team, you you could pick up on mm-hmm. on the nuances, and and I'm not that anymore no. with the Flames. So I'm I've got that arm's length view of it, and it does look like there were times when 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 the message of the of the coach was just being completely tuned out, and and I also think that you know the onus is on you know the way that the game is and the way that's governed by a salary cap the onus is on your highest paid players to produce at a level commensurate with with their salary and yeah. and I don't think you know I think any reasonable hockey fan will look at the way Jonathan Huberdo has played the way Nazem Kadri has played and and they haven't they haven't done that. And, you know, even someone like Elias Lindholm just seems like a different player this mm-hmm. year. I mean, he still has the great defensive chops. And, but, but when he scored when, 40 last year, when he had the puck in the slot last year, it was in the net. He's got the puck in the slot this year. He's missing the net. Yeah. It, and it's just, it's not, you know, he, he hasn't performed at the level 
that, that he did a year ago. And yes, he doesn't have Matthew Kachuk and he doesn't have Johnny Gaudreau. Obviously, that those mm-hmm. are factors. And yeah. uh, but I think too that you know last year when that line got going. You could it, it just exuded confidence every night out. Like, you know, they, I mean, everybody has a handful of of off nights over the course of a season, but they didn't have very many. Like they they were really you know a lot of people last year said that's the best line in hockey, and mm-hmm. it, would be, it would be hard to dispute that. There yep. would be like analytics to support it, and the eye test would support it. Absolutely. So and and he was a critical piece. He was the center on that line. He he was a critical piece. So you know the the level that he was at last year, he hasn't been at and. And, um, you know, it almost feels like they've, you know, like, thank goodness for Tyler Toffoli. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. And Michael Backlund. Yeah, and Backlund has been fantastic. But if you go back to the trade that they made for Toffoli last year to give up a first-round pick, and I remember Brad Tree Living saying at the time that one of the things that we like about this is not a rental. You know, he's a guy with term at a, at a, at a reasonable term and a guy that has a history with Daryl Sutter. And, and, mm-hmm. and so there won't be that adjustment period because, you know, sometimes it, it is difficult yep. for players that have played for, say, a, a John Cooper type or a Paul Maurice type to, to adjust to, to Daryl's style, you know, mm-hmm. which is more along the lines of what Mike Keenan used to, how Mike Keenan used to coach or Scotty Bowman. And uh, but with Toffoli, knowing you know uh, what he was getting, they they felt that there was a, a very sm- there wasn't much of a risk there, and and that has proven to be a true assessment. Like that that has been one of the better trades that that has been made here in, in a number of years. He's come in and been everything they hoped he'd be, and a little bit more. What about Winnipeg? I mean, here we are talking about Calgary. Mm-hmm. In a way, you know, Calgary's underachieved. Did Winnipeg overachieve in the first part of the season? You know, I don't know. That, I mean, that's a really good question because, I, like, I've, I've Winnipeg has puzzled me for for the longest period of time. Ever since you know that that year that they uh, they got to the final four and then lost to Vegas and then Vegas lost to Washington in the Stanley mm-hmm. Cup final. I, I've that's always right. felt that they've had. Uh, uh, like the, the, a team on paper that that should be competitive every year, and they've been up and down. Good and goalie, yeah. So you have a guy that's perennially in the conversation for for the Vezina. Um, you know, obviously, you know when they had to move away from the Dustin Bufflins and the Ben Sherrods mm-hmm. and and the Tyler Byers when those guys were in their primes, and it was really just Josh Morrissey that was left there. That the blue line was thin for a while, but I think that they've reinforced that by bringing in. You know the the Pionsks and the and and the Nate Schmitz and the and the Demellos. So I, I I think their blue line is is more than adequate. And and you know when their position players are all healthy on paper, they have one of the strongest you know one to nine groups of, of forwards in, in the National Hockey League. So and and you know two years ago they weren't very good, and then for the first half of this year they were. And a lot of it was the coaching change and you know breath of fresh air with Rick Bonus coming in and yeah. Paul Maurice had left us a little high and dry. That was what what the players were saying and um and then all of a sudden the bottom fell out so i they that just looks to me like a team that doesn't respond to the moment particularly well and then you know all of a sudden you know they they played a couple of games where they they looked like uh you know the team that they they needed to be you know they just you know had had two outstanding efforts uh and then last night just okay so i i think that there's a fragility yep. uh, to that team um but i also think that they're they're kind of sneaky dangerous because mm-hmm. if uh, if they get into the playoffs they could be one of those teams that says okay you know uh, i know Blake wheel is not the captain anymore but i think that he is a big believer in that you know us against the world thing yep. And I think that that's how that's the drum that you that they will beat if they get into the playoffs. No one believes in us. 
accept us, uh, the, the players in, in, in the dressing room, and let's go out and show them. And if you start, if you play with, you know, essentially a pressure in a pressure-free environment, we you just look at the teams at the bottom of the standings right now, that, you know, with the young kids coming in and all of a sudden, you know, Chicago's winning games that they're not supposed to, and then San Jose's winning games they're not supposed to, and Arizona has won way more games than, than, they, they, than they were supposed to. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, th- th- there's no question in my mind that, uh, that playing, you know, like a light and carefree brand of hockey just frees everybody up to play their games. Sure. And the opposite of that is is when you're feeling that pressure, it, it, it weighs on you. It's there's heaviness and, and, and when you have that heaviness on you, it slows you down. And all of a sudden, you know, on the nights when the flames haven't looked very good, they look slow, right? Yep. And I think that's yep. just the the heaviness of expectations that's uh that's weighing on them a little bit. So, you know, I often think about and I've said this a couple of times. In fact, I brought it up with Daryl Sutter when I saw him in California a couple of weeks ago that people have forgotten that in 2012, when the Kings won the Stanley Cup, they made it as the eighth seed. Um, they they were touch and go to make the playoffs, but they ultimately made it by, I think, five points. I looked it up today. Were they down to San Jose in the first round, too? That was, the, Next that was in year. 2014. Okay. Okay. So the year that they won in 2014, they yeah. were... They were on the ropes, and they had one of those miracle comebacks. Right. But in, but the no, the 2012 was the year that once they made the playoffs, they, they I think just they, they, yeah they only lost a handful of games yeah, the rest of the way. They they were the eighth seed. They, Vancouver was the top seed. They went in and just rolled over over Vancouver, and then they they just they, they, nobody really gave them a run that year. They they went from being a team that, that was an eighth seed, you know, or the second wild card if if that's the terminology you prefer, and and they rolled over everybody. Yeah. And so. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, people say, well, you know, teams are built for playoffs. L.A. was that kind of hard, heavy team. Um, but uh, I, I think about the year that uh, that Nashville made it to the Stanley Cup final. They were an eight seed, and they mm-hmm. took out Chicago in, in the first round. Columbus was an eight seed and, and took out... Uh, Took out Tampa, Tampa Bay that one year. Yep. Uh, Colorado was an eight seed in, in, in 2019 and took out, you know, in Kale McCarr's first year, took out Calgary. So, you know, the, on paper, it makes no sense. I'm sitting there trying to think, okay, how can you, you know, like how is, how is Florida going to beat Boston? Well, here's the thing, you know, uh, you know, Boston's had this amazing year. Last year, they were a wild card, you know, and Florida was the top seed. So this year, their roles are, are going to be reversed. practically reversed. Yeah. Florida will, you know, I think they're going to make it and if they do, but they'll make it as a wild card that just barely creeps into the playoffs. And Boston has been, you know, almost coasting this last little while, you know, I think Taylor Hall is coming back soon. Mm-hmm. Um, they're resting David Krejci, you know, most of the dispatches from Boston are, you know, uh, so-and-so could play tonight if it was a playoff game, but, you know, why run the risk? Right. Well, you know, uh, we've seen that happen in Calgary before where a team that has, uh, you know, clinched early, took the foot off the pedal and could never get, get it back. back. It couldn't no. get back up to 60 again after no. that. So, so I mean, that's what makes the, the playoffs the, you know, the intriguing animal that, that they are, that, uh, you know, even if you just go back the last, you know, five or six years, somebody somewhere is doing something they're not supposed to. The, the, the year of the Canadian division, you know, Montreal and Winnipeg were clearly, <laughs> you know, uh, the inferior teams and you know they both won and and you know well, Winnipeg and Mo- swept didn't they and 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 then the Montreal was in in the Stanley Cup final as, yeah. the, as they were the f- they were fourth in that in the division yeah and, you know and so uh, you know uh, this is th- this is why I don't gamble because uh, because <laughs> yeah. because I, I don't I wouldn't have the uh, you know I, I couldn't handle it I couldn't handle it you know because every everything is so logical and it points in one obvious direction and yet you know two weeks later it's like really boston eliminated mm-hmm. you know and but that's what we said about tampa and 
the year that they faced Columbus in the first round. They're, you know, they, they had one of the, the greatest regular seasons in history, and they were out in nine days. Yep. You know, so yep. anything can happen, which I guess is why we watch. Um, was Tuesday the last time Jonathan Tapes plays in Cal- played in Cal- will play in Calgary? Yeah. Is, is this the end? Well, you know, I, I think, you know, publicly he's saying that he wants to, to mull over his decision in, in the summer. And I think that's wise and mm-hmm. prudent. Uh, you know, it's been another difficult year for him. Uh, it, you know, like he, he missed that entire year because of long COVID. And then he came back and, you know, for a while was playing at a reasonable uh, level, not to the level that he once was at, but still, you know, a contributing player. And then, you know, all of a sudden he had another setback. And so, you know, I think he wants to, I, I think he, he wants to, and, and he deserves uh, the ability to just sort of look inside himself and, and, and say, you know, do I still have the motivation? Because the one thing that I will tell you that that, that in the abstract, every NHL player w- will say is that, you know, when they're approaching that career crossroads and they're con- considering retirement, it's not even so much the games in October that that matter because they, they all still love playing the games and they're ready to play the games and they get the adrenaline going for the games. It's those intermediate steps you have to take in the summer away from the spotlight yeah. where you're up in the morning and you're in the gym and you're working out and you're getting yourself into the condition that you need to be in even just to get to training camp and then yeah. you have the training camp and then you have the season. And that's, that's where the motivation disappears. It's, it's July and and you know the golf course is beckoning, and you've got the you know the the new tailor made driver is in your bag, and and the trainer wants you in there, yeah. you know, doing you know the medicine ball workout, and 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 that's honestly that's you know a lot of times when the decision is made. No, I'm trying out that new driver, so we'll see. I if you're asking me to to guess, I I, I think this probably is is the end uh, for him. Um, it would be different if he hadn't won three championships in, in six years. He's I won Olympic that. gold medal. I mean, th- you know, there's, there's, there's nothing really left for him to prove professionally. And, um, and then it's just a matter of, you know, and, and I think he's, you know, that's the other thing about Jonathan Taze. He's a pretty well-rounded guy, right? Mm-hmm. He has a lot of diverse interests. A lot of times people keep playing because they have no interests other than hockey. Yeah. And so if they don't have the game, they have to find something to do in the game, Where do whether, they go? It, yeah. whether it be in broadcasting, coaching, scouting, you know, there's, there's lots of other jobs affiliated with the game, but, but I suspect that he'll be somebody that, that, uh, you know, he's interested in green initiatives that, you know, he's a complex, interesting guy who is probably ready, readier than, than a lot of people for the next, uh, the next stage of his life. I, I, I was asking Peter Marr about this because I'm, I'm fascinated by what, people view as his legacy and maybe it's only because it's it's so rock solid for me i know he won stanley cups i know he won olympic medal but man when him when he and and kane came to town that franchise blossomed Mm -hmm. and it became because you know what it was like before that i mean two thousand fans on a weekend no home games on tv and all that now they're not ultimately responsible for those things but they were the face of that team that came back like I think his legacy is is almost making the Blackhawks relevant in Chicago again yeah that well that's a good point I, I and I don't think a legacy has to be a single thing no that's so true the, fair and, enough and yeah. so so I think that 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 there will be a number of things like when you know when, when 
when he gives his Hall of Fame speech, uh, you know, uh, I think that he will touch on on, on all those things, or or, mm-hmm. or certainly the people talking about him will touch on all those things. But but no, but that's a that's an important one to to discuss, I think, because um, we all know what he did in, on on those Stanley Cup uh, yep. teams. We all know what he did uh, in, in the Olympics. Uh, you know, he was I mean, he was such a catalyst on, on on that Olympic team. You know, when you have the best of the best in Canada, and then he is still one of the elite players yes. in that group. That that tells you something about his yep. his contributions but you're right and again so i was working at the globe and mail at the time and and i was one of the very early people that went in there before people knew who john mcdonough was or jay blunk you know i remember sitting in his office uh, you know people there tape recording every conversation to make sure that you get the quotes right uh, he was an interesting character john mcdonough but it was it was to do one of those revival of the blackhawk stories and and because he was you know like he was from chicago but he but he was working for the the baseball team the cubs at at, at the time and so you know like he would be trying to give me the history of of it and it's like okay I was there at the Chicago Stadium and and I was you know and I know what it was and I was also there in the early days of the United Center and I knew what what a mausoleum it had become so you don't have to fill me in on on the details I saw it at its peak and I saw it you know where where it just fell off the face of the earth and I think that that was one of the the things that was kind of like a crying shame for the National Hockey League you only have the six original six teams and and the legacy of the other five were were still great even you know Detroit when they were suffering as the the dead things and 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 the gray wings it was still yeah. Not as bad as Chicago at, yeah. at the very bottom, and and I do think, and, and plus, you know, they tried that rebuild several different times, right? So, Kyle you know, they Calder tried, and Bell, sure, yeah, the, the ABC line, Tyler Arneson, Mark Bell, and and uh, Kyle Calder, they yeah. they were supposed to be the the the, the building blocks, and that yeah. just it didn't work out, and then they had to start over again. So, really, the Kane Taves part was the rebuild within the rebuild, or the yep. rebuild after the rebuild, which is really hard to do. To go back to square one twice yep. in a, in a very short period of time—that's organizationally, you better get it right. And they did because those two guys were everything that they, you know, they hoped that they would be, and and more. And then I think the other thing is that there was there was a dynamic between the two of them. You know, they didn't always play together five on five, but whenever Joel Quenville needed a goal, he would put them out there five on five. They were dynamic on on the power play. They had different personalities. You know, Kane was that carefree mm-hmm. guy, and Taves was captain. Mm-hmm. Serious, Serious. And, yeah. and and it was just like the yin and yang of those two guys together. Though the, people always talk about chemistry, and and that that that's the thing that you cannot forecast. You know, you you grab Kane first overall, you get Taves third overall. You don't know whether these guys are going to work out together or clash. You don't know. Yeah. And 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 it did. It worked out it worked out perfectly. And so that to me is always one of the the real tests of of, of team building. And 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 not only that, you know, like the randomness of it. You know, mm-hmm. the idea that, you know, if if Taves went third overall, you know, what if, you know, you know, he had gone first overall instead of Eric yep. Johnson. Uh, could have changed the entire dynamic of uh, of two organizations, really. So, uh, so, and I actually, I've, I've been thinking a little bit about that because most of us are going to be writing a lot more about Connor Bedard in the next. <laughs> I don't know why. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You saw the goal. Uh, it looked like Mario Lemieux against the uh, Minnesota North Stars, didn't it? 
Which one? Okay. No, a couple games ago, he split the literally uh, yeah, physically yeah. split the two. You know what? So I, I've seen him. You know, like it, it's great because the networks are are are, are running highlights of, of yeah. all of their playoff games, and every, every night there's another one, Hat right? Trick. So, <laughs> but the, so that's why I was a little bit like, which one are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, there's that's a lot, true. There's Fair a enough. lot to choose from yeah. there. So, um, but but it was interesting because. Uh, you know, uh, I was watching the, the TNT broadcast a couple or three weeks ago, and, and this is this point has been made by a lot of people in the past, but I thought Henrik Lundqvist made it in, in a very compelling mm. way, which is that, you know, it's one thing, you know, to draft a player like that, but immediately you need to surround him with, with mm-hmm. the right people because the, the, the one way of really getting it wrong is to, is to not have the kind of... Uh, correct veteran leadership in, in, in the dressing room. To, and, and so, you know, then you look at the, at the various teams that are in contention. Columbus is in contention. Chicago's in contention. Anaheim's in contention. San Jose's in contention. Do mm. they have the right supporting mm. uh, group? And if they don't, you know, the onus will be on the respective general managers mm. to go out and, and get those players. And the only thing I would tell you is that in some of those, some of those markets, it's not that difficult to recruit players to. But if, if you have Connor Bedard as your shiny bobble, here's Connor Bedard, you yep. know, come and join us and be part of what we're building here. That will be very attractive to players who hit free agency this, uh, this summer. So, you know, if you're San Jose and, uh, and, and you get Connor Bedard, I, I think all of a sudden, you know, it will be a lot easier for Mike Greer to go out and, and sign oh, for sure. or bring in the right kind of players. And then some teams have them already in place. You know, last year I thought a lot of, there was if if he hadn't been hurt, probably Anaheim would have traded Adam Henrique, who I think is a really good leader, and I've known him since his New Jersey days. Um, you know, probably that you know if if they don't get Bedard, they might trade him in the summer. But if they do get Bedard, then you've got, already got a piece there. You like you've got yeah. Henrique, and you and you want a couple more yeah. uh, guys like that. So uh, drafting Connor Bedard for one team is going to be like a complete home run, and that will also I think open the door. Uh, to, to just make it easier to, to get that you know the right kind of players to surround him with, and so you know that that is that's the fast track to success as far as I'm concerned. If Chicago gets some, would that influence Taves? Maybe would you Possibly. want it? Would you want to stick around oh, to yeah, well, groom him? Well, that, put it this way: if, if you're the that general, could be a legacy <laughs> piece too. If you're if you're the general manager in Chicago and Jonathan Taves is is thinking about it, what you're saying right now is well, first of all, they're still playing, right? Right, so, absolutely. So take your time. Yep. we'll know on May the eighth. Yep. who wins the draft lottery? We'll know by then. You know, so then as Jonathan Taves makes his decision this summer, one of the things that he'll have to factor is. You know, Connor Bedard is coming in, and you know, like, you know, you, you need to find, uh, you know, that energy, right? You need to find that passion again, and and possibly having a, a player of his ilk, you know, like a, you know, a young, you know, maybe the next Connor McDavid or or whatever, you know, that could be just the the tipping point in, in terms of getting someone who's you know listing towards retirement to think yeah maybe another year or two because you're right Jonathan Taves is the perfect oh. guy in terms of of setting a standard for a young player coming in absolutely and and I would guess that that if if Chicago does get Connor Bedard one of the first orders of business will be Jonathan you know come on back you know come on back so you know my love of obscure story not necessarily obscure stories but stories that nobody else is talking about uh-huh. okay what do we got <laughs> comes from the athletic uh-huh. we're staying in chicago uh-huh. the chicago wolves mm-hmm. 
are going to go all independent next year in the yeah. American Hockey League. First yeah. time since 94, 95. Right. Yeah, the yeah. old IHL would have had independent teams yeah. too. Um, I don't know what to make of this. It, it just seemed like the whole minor league system had run its course, and now the AHL was there to serve the NHL. Right. And yet, you know, I read the quotes from Wendell Young, who's been there for a long time. They won last year. They beat Stockton. Yeah. Um, but they don't want to lose. Yeah. So now they're going to go independent. Yeah. Is that is that crazy? Is that weird? Is that? I I don't know. I I, I don't know if it's crazy or weird. I, I do think that there's there are an awful lot of players who are great AHL players who never get a chance at at, at the National Hockey League level. And so we got one here. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Matt Phillips. Right. Yeah. 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 And uh, you know, I, I, so the the you know I, I think. Probably every AHL team has somebody like that yeah, or, or a couple that, that are like that. And so so think about it. If you're the Chicago Wolves and if you're a player, you know, 25, 26, 27, you know that your best hope is like an NHL cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have an opportunity to live in Chicago, you know, play with other players that are, that are like you. you know, so it's probably going to be a, like an extreme winning environment. Um, I, I think they'll they'll beat up on the league. To be I do too. To, yeah, yeah, I do because you know everybody else is going to be in that development mode, and you have to be right. The whole idea of, of having a minor league team is to make sure that every year you can feed you know one or two you know Walker Durs or or, yeah. or Jacob Pelches into your lineup because that's the only way of you know of of sustaining any kind of consistency in, in the National Hockey League. So, if, but but if you you know, if you're not going to be that guy, like, if, you know, if you're in that next group of, of forwards that's just kind of there to, you know, to ride shotgun for these young guys that are being groomed to, to play in the National Hockey League, and the option is to, to go and play in a, in a great city for a team that's probably going to win lots. Um, yeah, I, I, I see nothing but, like, incredible success for them. Do they have a salary cap in the American Hockey League? Not that I'm aware of, but I... They, I know they I, have I, rules in terms of the amount of players you can sure, have with the experience. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So, I mean, there, there will be uh, ways of, of navigating around. Are they going to spend more on players in Arizona? That's what I'm asking. Well, uh, no. <laughs> well, actual players or, or contracts that are actual on the book. Actual players. Okay, actual players. Well, it could be close, you know. I mean, that, that, that's the crazy thing about Arizona's payroll is that it's, you know, it is inflated by how having all of these contracts on it that that are, are mirages, right? You know, they, they have a salary cap number that doesn't even reflect what the actual compensation is. You know, the salary cap number is 5.5. The compensation in the final year of the contract is a million dollars. And then, you know, and in the case of a number of them, their the contracts are insured, so you're not really on the hook for, for very much. So, yeah, there is a salary cap game being played in the National Hockey League. And I, I, I'm just not familiar enough with the mechanics yeah. of the AHL to be able to tell you one way or another. I do think there are rules, and but I think that those rules are, are still give them the opportunity to attract the best, you know, you know, 25 to 28 year old players in, in the league, you know, pay, you know, a competitive salary and, and, and just create an, an attractive work environment for them. I might be the only person that is thinking this way, but I wonder if Hershey and some of these other traditional American sure. hockey league franchises that were for a long time, they were mostly independent with yeah. six mm-hmm. or seven yeah. affiliated players. I wonder if they follow suit. That's a good point. Well, uh, you know, what I will tell you is that hockey at every level uh, it tends to be copycat. So if, if, <laughs> yes, if, one, if one organization has success uh, doing that, then, then others presumably will follow suit. 
Welcome to the Oodle Noodle Studio. Oh yeah, nice here. Hey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark like Loop, this? Eh? Yes, yes. yes. I, I, I was impressed. I was, uh, by the way, though, you gave me one bit of bad information. What? <laughs> no street parking to speak of. Nothing. I, well, uh, those guys with the, all those guys with the free vehicles in the show before me—they all left before you got here. They well, been part, lots of uh, well, uh, put it this way: it's a beautiful day, and, and that, that, <laughs> that 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 twelve-minute walk didn't really. Oh bother my me. gosh! Okay. <laughs> if I okay. can only remember where I parked, yeah, because it's way over there. <laughs> um, but the rest of it is great. <laughs> thank you. Um, Thank you. Um, and, of course, we can read you in The Athletic. Uh, I, I, just a shout-out, and uh, normally I shout-out your stuff. I just want to shout-out uh, Fludo's uh, column yesterday on Allmark, on the two inches. Have you had a chance to read no, that? No. Oh, I love that kind of, yeah. you know, gets in the weeds with Bob Essenza yeah. and talks about, here's a guy that was like 38th in save percentage yeah. and now is going to win the Vesna right. two inches. Yeah. It's fantastic. That's what you get out of the athletic. Okay. You well, get well, the 99 and, and that kind of writing out of the athletic. Yeah. Well, and then the one thing I would tell you is that even as someone that works there, um, we have 40 plus hockey writers producing a lot of copy and it's difficult for me to read everything. No kidding. Written by my colleagues. Yeah. You know, it's, there's a lot out there. So yeah, you know, I guess this is my turn for a shameless promotion. If you care about the game and, and especially if you care about the minutiae of the game, you know, we have we have quite a bit of really interesting stuff out there. And some young people that I really admire, you know, like I, you know, Shana Goldman, Dom Lecician are, mm-hmm. are, you know, I've been working with them on, on various trade boards and, and different projects uh, the last couple of years. And, and I've really come to appreciate um, how smart they are and uh, they're mathematical geniuses. You know, we have these these skull sessions and, uh, you know, they, they could teach math at university. Sure, you know, I was a good math student. <laughs> I'm not. You know, I so. was a good math student uh but they're phenomenal so yeah yeah anyway enough of that um uh, we told you we got a general manager for the halifax killer uh, uh, seals that's trent mcclellan uh did you get any feedback on your six i'll call them on the six possible expansion locations oh yeah oh yeah yeah that was you know that was i know it was a couple weeks ago but yeah well it was it it it, it's it was by far the most a red story that I've written this year by far. Like, really? Oh, off the top. Yeah. And, and I, and I believe it sold the most subscriptions of everything I read. Yeah. No, it touched a nerve. It touched nerves everywhere. So I love it. So yes, I got quite a bit of reaction to it. In fact, I think somebody at the, you know, can you do versions of that more regularly? And it's like, <laughs> I'd like to, <laughs> I'd like to be able to. Yeah. I don't think you can go to down that well too often, but, uh, but no, it, it, uh, it popped. You get it to popped, the, as we like to say. You get to the point where we're talking about Weyburn and Banff this week. I don't think it works. That won't work. No. <laughs> Good to see you, my friend. Thanks okay. for coming in. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> Eric DeHatchik, everybody from The Athletic, of course, brought to you by Ski Cellar Snowboard, skisellersnowboard.com. Uh, 76 years in Calgary, three locations, McLeod Trail by Chinook Center, 17th Avenue Southwest, just off of 14th Street, Bow Ridge Road Northwest by McDonald's, just down the hill from Winsport. Hey, hockey players, check out their snow. No skating. That's all I'm going to say. Go in and ask them about snow skating. Uh, the final mile today, just a couple of things. Uh, five years. Um, this is a really uh, a tragic day. Five years ago, the accident in Humboldt uh, with the Junior A team, uh, it forever changed the hockey world. Uh, it remains and has a long-lasting impact. Um, what we can talk about is that some of the things that it spawned out of that, that the uh, from great tragedy, people made 
positives. Uh, I think of the Boulay effect and Green Shirt Day, and I think of uh, even Ryan Strasniski uh, from around here who continues to to uh, push forward and now has set the goal of making our Paris led team and um, you know all of the recognition that uh, that we continue to give to these uh, to these players and the and the broadcaster and the trainer and and the coach Darcy Hogan. Um, Hard to believe. I, I think for most of us, we know where we were when we found out. Um, I know for a lot of us, it was, you know, it felt so it, right in the pit of your stomach, just kind of sickening about uh, having to put a stick out, not having to put a stick out, but putting a stick out. But that was all we could do at the time. How uh, the country rallied around it, how it really struck a nerve in the hockey world. Um, I don't know. I hope it's made positive change. I think it has. Uh, I'm, I, I won't speak on you know, safety and, and highway safety and things like that. I know there was a lot of conversations about those. I, I can't speak to that. I know bus travel was reevaluated for all junior hockey teams and for all teams that travel. It, it became more important. Bus safety became more important. You take that stuff seriously, uh, as we should. But uh, just recognizing that it was five years ago today, and we will never forget. I, and last, uh, I do want to end the week, and it is the end of the week. Uh, we'll be back with you next week on a, a rather positive story. We talked uh, last week with uh, Michael Blaze. Uh, he, he's a wrestler, uh, you, originally from Calgary. He's up in Edmonton right now, but he uh, is on May 13th is going to wrestle uh, for eight straight hours. He is on the card at the Pavilion. We were talking about that earlier with JD. Um, Dungeon Wrestling has a, a great card at the Pavilion. There's still a few tickets available, but I want to thank Steve Lambros and the rest of Dungeon Wrestling who reached out and uh, made a, dr- a tremendous, generous offer uh, and ha- are inviting uh, almost 40-plus uh, heroes and superheroes, kids and their families, to Dungeon Wrestling tomorrow. Uh, an opportunity to that particularly the heroes kids would never get. Um, so we really appreciate that. Um, it, it just reeks of Calgary. It reeks of, of the hearts. It reeks of community. And, and the fact that they did that really means a lot to uh, many of us. So thanks to, uh, thanks to them. Uh, fun week. Uh, look forward to next week. We're with you on Monday, uh, Wednesday, and Friday next week. Uh, we are hoping to have Marco Carducci in studio on Wednesday, another conversation I've been looking forward to having for a long, long time. Uh, none of this show happens without uh, some great producers, and right now I'm, I'm, I'm really being propped up by three of the best. Uh, thanks to Gavin, thanks to Mark, and thanks to Jack this week for doing an outstanding job. Uh, remember, this is a podcast, so if you're just catching us for the first time, please uh, leave a recommendation, the stars, all of those sort of things, and, and more importantly, tell your friends, and go back and listen to some of the the programs we've had. Uh, I mentioned Mike, Michael Richard Blaze, which was an awesome conversation last week. Uh, Kelsey Snow was on the program recently. Even yesterday, uh, both Peter Marr and then we had Grace Dayfoe and Alicia Rissling got a lot of feedback on Alicia and Grace, and a lot of people appreciated that. So um, we're trying to stay true. This is a, a Calgary show about sports, and, and we want to take a little time and, and get into the uh, details where we can. Have a great weekend. Um, Make sure if you're celebrating that uh, it is everything you need it to be. Uh, Take care of each other, and we will see you on Monday. Thanks, everybody.